He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, October 21, 2023. The world still rocked. We should be celebrating the criminal justice system coming through. Fonnie Willis, way to go. Sydney Powell, guilty. And now she's testifying. Boy, does that have big repercussions. In Denver, the case of Coomer v. Sydney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Team Trump, Randy Corcoran, 710, KUS, Salem, and we have to talk about those people. And of course, the criminal consequences. Way to go, Bonnie Willis, now Kenneth Chesbro. Let's call him Cheesebro. I'm not sure, but he's guilty. He's a felon. Another lawyer who has to tell all, which could lead to the same group of people and eventually to Donald Trump. That's great because. Great prosecutors, women of color standing up to Donald Trump, Tish James with her case undressing his frauds in New York. Fantastic. Tanya Chetkin laying down the law. What a job she's doing so far. I love how the criminal justice system will work if given the opportunity with Donald Trump. But, of course, we're all distracted. And maybe that's the point, because I suspect... Uh, Trump's pals, Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia, talk about a backstab. He could step up now and say, hey, that's bullshit. But no, MBS immediately stabs Israel in the back. And who's he pals with? Vladimir Putin. I've written about this for the Colorado Sun. Not much I can do about it, even though I'm right. Not much I can do about what's going on in Israel except try to put on the greatest shows in the world. This episode 177 is pitch perfect. What can we do about the war? Hamas attacking the Jewish state of Israel. Well, some Jews, guys I admire, Victor Mitchell, former state rep, gubernatorial candidate for the Republicans, lost barely to Walker Stapleton. Why? Because he would not back Donald Trump. That's my kind of guy. Vic Mitchell, a Republican of principle. Of course, he's a Republican no more, but he is a Jew. And he talks about that, explains his journey and why he's in Israel right now on Shabbat trying to help. I'm trying to help on the home front by putting on great knowledgeable rabbis like Rabbi Stephen Foster. He's outstanding. My gosh, the stories. The pulpit, he's been a rabbi at Temple Emmanuel 53 years. They've collected his papers at CU Boulder, but he's still giving great speeches. Go to the show notes. I've linked a couple of the recent high holiday talks, but none is better than my hour-plus beautiful conversation with one of Colorado's most impactful rabbis ever, Rabbi Stephen Foster. 
Now, Rabbi Foster officiated at the funeral of Allenberg. You'll hear I ask him about it, but he talks about Judith Berg, whose family was a legendary part of Temple Emanuel, and a little bit about Alan, but my podcast has been obsessed with trying to find out all I can about the murder of Allenberg, which, just like with Hamas, comes down to Jew-hating. Some Jew-haters from... Idaho came down to Colorado, found accomplices along the way, and uh, they had quite the gang, Aryan Nation, and America had to put that down. Not as big, not as organized as Hamas. But then there was Tim McVeigh, who had his anti-Semitic parts too. Same Turner Diaries crap that motivated the murder of Allenberg. And I didn't know Alan Berg, but as fortune has had it, I've gotten to know Judith Berg, and you can too, on episode 101, when she told me that Peter Boyles, a guy who still hosts for George Brockler, sponsored by Dan Kaplis, on 710 KNUS, he called her the most vile thing. Well, listen to her explain it. Here's the thing that I want to know about Alan Berg. Because I've tried to identify who his friends were at the time he died. Who would you say were his top friends? Well, uh, I don't know. And I hope, I just hope that Alan really didn't allow a friendship with Peter Boyles. Because Peter claimed they were friends. I don't know. You would know. What, What do you know about that? I don't know anything. I never witnessed those two interact. Uh, maybe I heard them on the radio occasionally, but at the time of Alan's death, they were competing against each other, and I have yes. been in a and situation. Alan, and Go ahead. Peter Boyle, Peter Boyle told me, Alan left you money. Why don't you give the money to his mother? I hated Peter. I hate him. I hated him then. I hate him now. I hated him forever. Why don't you give money to Ruth Berg? Then he called me a kike. Peter Boyle called me a kike. For what reason? Probably because he thought I... Well, because he was telling me to give money to Alan's mother. I mean, Peter has always been in an inordinate uh, conversation, I think. I mean, I know he has a a population that thinks he's great. That's a startling accusation to say that he used the K-word. Are are you sure? When did this happen? This happened after Alan died and... and, um, Oh, it was, I think it was after something about he left me money and and Peter thought I should give it to to Ruth Berg. I mean, Peter's so outrageous. Are you surprised? So anyway, I was uh, really startled to have Judith lay it down that way. And I probed her and you heard her responses. And I've never heard any denial. Who would sponsor a guy like that? I've followed Boyles for years through one Israeli conflict after another, and he's always against Israel. And I know he went to Israel one time, but he never went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust memorial, the place you got to go. 
You go in one side of a mountain and you can't get out because you got to wind through what happened in Europe. And it's so devastating. And you see what happens with anti-Semitism. And Peter Boyles wants to talk about, oh, the British did this, the British did that. We're not talking about the British here. We're talking about good old Jew-hating. And when we say anti-Semitism, that's a word that Germans and British came up with to describe Jew-hating. Yet Jew-haters like Peter Boyles, they like to argue, well, how can Palestinians be anti-Semites when they're Semites too, not realizing that this is a British-German creation. And he passes himself off as some kind of smart guy. And I'm sick of it. In a time of war, there's no time for that. I've done shows about who were the true friends of Alan Berg. You can Google it. Just Google my name, Alan Berg. I put on his true friends. I put on sound of the late Alan Berg. I figured it out that I don't thank Alan Berg and Peter Boyles for good friends. Yet Peter Boyles has claimed that in prominent newspaper articles. And when he testified at the trial, he said that was so. I just don't understand how that could be. And I want to protect the memory of a Jewish guy who was killed for being Jewish. That's why I interview Judith Berg and play her for you. Because I'll tell you what, Alan Berg, I remember him, I don't know him, but as progressive as he was, and as progressive as Rabbi Foster is right now, Hamas, what they did, they need to die. They need to pay a price, a severe price. It's just a question of what we do now. And Israel has raised up a big fist. And uh, we're going to do something. We're going to do something. But we don't know really what to do. And we want our rage to subside. And I want to figure out what I can do. And I need to call out the Tokyo Rose characters here on the home front. And that's why I talk about terror on Pete because he really has always backed Hezbollah. He never went to Yad Vashem, but he sat down with Hezbollah in Lebanon and with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Jeez, what do they have in common? And here's the change you can notice and even some astute callers as he filled in day after day for George Brockler. They said, hey, where, where's the usual Tim Furnish or, you know, uh, Dr. Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch, or you used to have on Pam Geller, you would talk about radical Islam, which Hamas surely is. But Peter, where are those people? No, you're not talking about that. He's talking with professors who reinforce his blaming of Israel. Yes, pro-Hamas propaganda on the George Brockler show, on the Peter Boyle show, courtesy of Dan Kaplis, who sponsors both. And George Brockler, who's, I guess, in the military, is a colonel, he turns over, he surrenders his show to a guy who wants to say, I'm not going to take a side as Hamas rapes women, cuts off the head of our children. He doesn't want to take us. He won't take a side. He probably does want to take a side, but the most he can muster instead of saying, hey, guess what? And he kind of said it all week. He said, 
I have a framed picture of Michael Collins. I looked this guy up. He was a terrorist for the IRA fighting the Brits. And that was his hero. And he keeps saying how one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And we get the point. He thinks Hamas is like Michael Collins, his Irish hero. And you know what? People can think anything they want. They can say it. They can even say it on the radio, but I can say it back and say that's bullshit. And that's what I'm saying here and now. And let me play you some more sound so you know what I'm talking about. Because it really is cause for concern. Because this influences people here in Colorado. And Boyle starts denigrating talk radio too. It's really something. Not everybody listens to Colorado radio. I appreciate that. Peter Boyles was a big deal in my life. And he had a bit of a national impact during Jean Bonnet and as leader of the birther movement. Let's not forget that and that racism. Anyway, he thinks he's smart. He does have a degree from Metro State. And he was hosting for Brockler the other day when, just for comic relief in these tough times, I I thought I would play you this. When Peter Boyle's smart man doesn't understand the difference between imminent and eminent. I guess royalty, like Michael Collins in the eyes of Peter Boyle's, would be the eminent Michael Collins. If a situation is just about to happen, It is imminent. Here's Peter Boyles. Morning, everybody. On Monday morning, October 16th, 2023, I'm Peter Boyles in for George. I'll be here today and here on Wednesday. 74 will be the high today and 81 on Tuesday, Wednesday, 75 degrees. What now the outcome? The Israeli ground invasion apparently is imminent. So here's the thing about Peter Boyles. He loves to get on people who say ditto. Yes, you're the smartest. And he loves flattery, just like you-know-who, Donald Trump. Bertha loves flattery, narcissist, populist, nationalist, bigot. Yeah, you're starting to see what I'm talking about. So he finds this guy from Baylor University, not as bad as Ward Churchill, but honest to God. His name is David Smith, I do believe. You can look him up. And he can listen to this. I did not like what he had to say. But he does agree with everything Peter Boyle says. And they think they're so smart. And right here in this next soundbite, you can hear these two brilliant historians who are so elite that Peter Boyle announces, I'm not taking his side. Really. As Jew haters storm in and rape Women and cut off babies' heads. Well, calm down, Craig. This didn't start last Saturday morning. Right. And will happen again. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you think it started last Saturday morning, you simply don't understand what's going on. Yeah. And there's sort of no way around that. I read when I, I got to read, it was interesting when I started to really attempt to understand the world. And I had this great guide as an undergraduate, uh, Dr. Brooks Van Everen, who is, uh, Dr. Van Everen has now passed. But I tell people, he taught me how to read. 
I mean, I could read, mm-hmm. but he taught me how to read. Now go read this. Right. Now I'll go read this. And I started reading. The first guy I read was George Habash. And he was a, a doctor, a Christian, Palestinian. And he would write about what was going on in the world. And then you started reading other guys. You could read anything you wanted if you were willing to read. Now, I, I don't know if the curtain has dropped on um, historic truth in, in American media. I believe it has. Mm. And I'm not you're, And I'm started the show this way and we're coming to the end. But I'm not taking a side. I'm not I'm not trying to say, oh, boy, these guys are right. Or, oh, boy, these guys are wrong. But just right. how did we get here? Gosh, it makes me sick, that George Bosch shit that he's quoted for about 25 years since he read a guy who could write in English and complain about American jets, Israeli jets. Yeah, we get it, Peter, the poor, oppressed Arabs. Yeah, we know you love them, too. What happened to you putting on Robert Spencer and Tim Furnish? Anyway, as the court would say, don't direct your comments toward the defendant. Talk to the court. I'm talking to the audience. I'm talking to this guy, David Smith from Baylor. Holy cow. We have to make this a video short. Those have gotten really popular on YouTube because you just can't get sound like this with the eggheads. Again, the brilliant historian Peter Boyles who says, you know what? What Hamas did was like the Tet Offensive. It's nothing new. Well, it's nothing new to have Jew haters. It's nothing new to have people who would have kept us out of World War II. We've seen you follow Pat Buchanan. We know who your heroes are. I am glad not to be a pal of Peter Boyles because that guy, I call him out as a Jew hater. And I really have to say this to George Brockler, colonel in the army. You want to surrender your show? to this, give a listen to this, Dan Kaplis, you want to keep sponsoring during this long battle between Hamas and Israel, a guy who wants to support Hamas, I'm not calling for a boycott. I'm not calling for anything other than people to think about it. And you know what? I'm not asking for anything other than for guys like Dan Kaplis and George Brockler, who I think really are supporting Israel, to think about it. And I'm asking them to think about the speeches of Joe Biden, all three of which I'll play at the end of this super long wartime edition show. But you should take those 12 to 14 to 15 minute segments and play them for your audience. And say that there's a Jew named Craig, Craig Silverman, who appreciated each and every one of those speeches. And he's a Jew and he's an ardent supporter of Israel. And he's willing to talk tough against radical Islam. He was willing to uh, vote for Mitt Romney. You can talk about this. You can play the sound of Joe Biden and stop picking him apart. Joe Biden is a friend of Israel. He's a friend of the Jewish people in this tough time. He doesn't need backbiting from you. Okay, and here's what pissed me off about you guys and why I've railed against you on Twitter. 
first of all, you guys are public figures, and you're talking big time on the radio to big drive-time audiences. I know they're diminished, but then you have your podcast. It's a lot bigger than my audience. So I want to push back on Twitter and elsewhere. I had Brockler on the show. Kaplan said no, not without preconditions that I would not talk about Kyle Clark. Kyle Clark, who talked about Dan the other day as part of the pro-violence aspect that's threatening Ken Buck. Dan's been bullying Ken Buck, but Kyle referenced back when Dan tried to dox those teachers. Yeah, Brockler was involved in that Douglas County thing too. And they made a guy named Mike Kane take the ball. Mike Kane, who was a prosecutor, who is a good trial attorney, who is a Marine, he left Capless a year ago. He and a bunch of the other former prosecutors, all the prosecutors gone, leaving Dan with Bobber. Bobber, who I don't really know the guy, but I don't think he, I know he wasn't a prosecutor. I know Dan wasn't a prosecutor. And I know what happened when uh, former prosecutor George Brockler tried to work with Dan Kaplis. Maybe that's another story, another day. But Peter Boyles has kept advertising this October that the Kaplis firm has all these prosecutors. Look, I was a prosecutor. I do the job. I advertise for myself right here. And I think it is an asset to be an ex-prosecutor. I think it's wrong to do false advertising. I think it's wrong what Peter Boyle says. And I can back that up with sound, too. I bring sound. I bring exhibits. I work this show because I'm going to work the home front. And I'm going to call out Peter Boyles because he's got his Saturday show and Brockler's going to keep surrendering shows to him. Now, 710 is apparently collapsing. Tubbs is leaving. There's not going to be another local host. Dan pays for his show on KHOW. And he also simulcasts up and down the front range, so a lot of people are listening to him. And he says some good things. The other day, I had to tweet, remind him, he said, Biden's ineffectual, he's weak, he doesn't have Israel's back. He can't say it enough. Listen to the three speeches at the end of my show. Anyway, he keeps saying that. Rather than let his audience hear the speeches he picks out here or there, says he's weak, and he said, and he's done nothing to back it up. How about the two battleships? How about what Rabbi Dolan talked about last week? Gosh, I hate to see people in the public misinformed by public figures, but then Dan took note of my damning tweet, and he said, yeah, oh yeah, he did send battleships. So I can affect him a little bit, and I hope this affects him to understand Peter Boyle's a bad guy when Israel is facing an existential threat. And Dan Kaplan does realize that. At least Dan realizes the seriousness, and I believe he wants Israel to win. Peter Boyle's, not so much. Listen to this soundbite, talking about moral ambiguity. These two brilliant elite historians. People like you working on this are still critical mm, right. because you're the one that's exploring the real story. Yeah. And it's complicated and yeah. you know it's complicated. Yeah, but read what and, what people have said, you know, online and I I made a deal I wasn't going to have any screaming and hollering, no personal attacks. It's like 
mm. a dog in the fight. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, if you are like us and we care about mm-hmm. history and we believe that you knowing history is crucial mm-hmm. to you understanding today, you have to have these long, oh. detailed conversations that acknowledge moral ambiguity. And that's not what people want today. No. They just want to shout and get mad and be validated. Sure. I, I, I've gotten myself sort of jammed up by saying talk radio is turned into angry white guy radio. And we have an angry white guy replaced by another angry white guy. And then following him is an angry white guy. And, 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 and the, the, they know they know what they did at Fox. And they're, you know, I don't know what the what Rupert's got, not Rupert anymore, but uh, but we have this angry white guy talk radio with one or two exceptions. And it doesn't go anywhere, but it's it makes people stupid. It, it fires them up emotionally to follow whatever gust of wind fills their sails. Yeah. And, and they they can be misled into whichever way you want, you know. And and, it, and it, tell it, lies. It, yeah, and, yeah, and tell lies and, and not yeah. be able to differentiate from the truth. And now we come. Now we come to this. Gosh. Um, it's all been done before. <laughs> That's isn't that the message of history? It's all been done before. We've yep. been here before. <laughs> I, I first when I watched this, I said that's 1968 February Tet when they rose. Yep, and they're, yeah, they're, they weren't going to win. Yeah, everybody was. Everybody's been sort of comparing it to the Yom Kippur War. No, but uh, you know, in their timing and stuff. But you comparing this to Tet is is perfect. Yeah, I think. I think so. And wow, the insults that Boyles hurls at the mouths that feed him. He's talking about how shitty talk radio has become, says they're gutless, they're afraid to speak the truth about Israel, and yet Dan Kaplan sponsors that position, and George Brockler surrenders his morning platform to the guy. I mean, they're slim pickings. Why? Because they embraced white Christian nationalism over there, and that's where they made common cause with Peter Boyles and the MAGA movement. And the GOP, whatever flaws Brockler sees in the GOP, it's not enough for him to move away or really say shit about anything. Well, I'm saying it's shitty for him to turn his show over to Peter Boyles. And I've got more evidence, but I have to get two amazing guests. Victor Mitchell, sensational from Israel. Rabbi Foster showing all his skills. He's funny. He's smart. He's got wisdom, he's got a great family, and he stood the test of time. 53 years as a Denver rabbi and going strong. I posted his current sermons. They're good. They're great. Then my troubadour. Yeah, he's bringing up the rear. He's traveling, but he has his song showing us the way. Love has a way, and it does. Even in the crappiest desert or even a bleak sidewalk of concrete, a flower can come out. Beauty is where you find it. Even in tough times, creation happens again. And I was able to do this show after the release of Judith and Natalie Renan, Brother Ben in Denver, 
an American Jewish family, Chicago roots, where Dan's from. And again, I hate to be harsh, but those radio stations are so far gone and they've done so much damage that I'd like to see them push back a little because we have an exogenous threat. I think that means a threat from the outside, but Dan sizes it up. This is a threat to America. And the thing about Dan and George, they're not Metro State smart. They're really smart. And they're ambitious. And they want to succeed in the GOP. And I'd like them to be leaders. And I'd like them to see that right now is not the right time to be putting down Joe Biden. He's really the commander of all of this. Bibi is going to be a goner. I mean, I hope he lives a long life and he helps out, but he can't lead Israel anymore. People don't trust him. I don't. Our Bibi Fury will come. Rabbi Foster and I talk about that. Vic Mitchell's trying to help. I'm trying to help by watching the home front. Come on, fellas. I was in the belly of that beast. Stop the Jew-hating. Don't support it. Don't allow it. That's what hurts Israel. Jew-hating. Hamas. Nazis. Make it stop. Enjoy this show. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Gosh, this is thrilling. Victor Mitchell's been my friend for a while now. It's interesting the way we met. He's now in the land of Israel. Just arrived, Victor Mitchell, former Colorado state rep, a leading candidate for governor until he opposed Donald Trump. That made me proud because I realized Victor Mitchell is a cut above 
and uh, he's proving it again. Victor, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to speak with you, Craig. Thank you for having me on. Tell everybody where you are and why you are where you are. My wife and I uh, entered Israel early this morning. We're in Tel Aviv now. We spent the day here delivering medical and uh, other humanitarian supplies and uh, um, just enjoying our time here in the Holy Land. Holy cow. Something worth fighting for. There's a war going on. You and I, through the miracle of modern Israeli-invented communications, we just found out that uh, Judith and Natalie Renan, two American Jewish hostages, were released. Apparently, Natalie's brother, Ben, is a, a Denverite right now. So it has a Denver connection, too. It's a truly a miracle, but I mean, there's still some 230 more to go. So that's a small victory, but make no mistake about it. The people here in Israel are suffering and, and been deeply traumatized and it's very much the country's on a war footing. Right. This is cruel psychological trauma. Again, for that 230 that you spoke about, what about their relatives? Is a selection process going on like happened during the Holocaust? I mean, we had a Holocaust-type event, and some people sit on their ass, and Victor Mitchell, you got up. You and Amy, tell us why you made this journey. Just we felt we had to do more than just give money. I mean, we had to get involved. This attack was not attack against the um, good people of Israel. It was attack against all Jewry across the entire world. And um, I, for some reason, you know, we live in America as an American Jew. We feel, you know, maybe we're isolated. We might feel differently. But to me, this felt like a, an attack against all Jewish people, not just attack against the state of Israel. Well, tell everybody about your journey as a Jew, because it's a little unusual. No, you and I, it's, it is an unusual journey. Uh, um, I was I'm an Ashkenazi Jew by birth. Both my parents are Jewish. Um, I kind of denied my Judaism. I was basically secular and uh, basically non-religious most of my life until I discovered that my grandmother was the only survivor in the Holocaust. And she never told anybody while she was alive. We did a genealogy report a number of years ago and discovered that she had lost some close to 50 members in her family, all of her brothers and sisters, her parents, all of her cousins, and so forth. So it just kind of ignited something in me to rediscover who I really am. And um, that was about six, seven years ago. And I feel very much connected to my faith and my culture today. Now, I was thinking about six or seven years ago when we first met. I think it was at a gubernatorial debate, Republican gubernatorial debate, that I was asked to moderate. And you were running for governor, and you had a great chance. You were a former state rep. You had a great uh, TV ad going. And uh, you were as smart as anybody up there. Do you remember that first time you met me? Of course. Uh, those are how legends were formed. I mean, it was a great, uh, it was a great forum. It was a lot of fun. Uh, George ba Brocker was on the stage with us, and, and it was quite an event. He was running for governor right then. But, uh, yeah, it was a sassy event. I'd like to have a tape of that. But back then, I didn't <laughs> know you were Jewish. 
I mean, when did you come out, so to speak? When you were a state rep, did people know you were Jewish when they voted for you? I mean, I never hit it, but I never spoke about it. Um, but I would say that uh, I came much more out in, after the campaign for governor. So I would say in probably most like in early 2019 when I started really discovering, you know, visiting Israel on a frequent basis and really understanding more of my roots and my heritage. And paying tribute to my grandmother who came to this country in 1917 during the height of the Bolshevik Revolution. She was just 17 years old. She didn't speak any English. And uh, she was a rebellious teenager, and she came here without anything, learned the language, adapted to American culture, raised two incredible sons, and uh, the rest was history. But who would have ever known that she would be the only surviving sibling uh, in her entire family? She lost everybody. She was the only one that left uh, Russian, at that time, Russia. What was her name? Her name was Sarah Vond, V-A-N-D, but when she came through Ellis Island, she changed her name to Sarah Wand with a W. Uh, I think we think because the person that took her application at Ellis Island didn't under couldn't pronounce Vond, so they uh, incorrectly spelled her last name as Wand. Well, you know, have you ever thought, "Holy cow, I made a good decision"? Because to be a Jew is just. Uh... A peckle of tsuris. In Yiddish, that means a basket of troubles. Why would you want that? <laughs> you know, I, I say that to my wife, who's a Jew by choice. And I said, oh, people want to kill us. They want to kill you, Victor Mitchell. And yet you go right to the neighborhood of Hamas. What's up with you? Are you reckless with your life? No, not reckless at all. I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't describe my way. It's just a calling. I mean. I want to be with my people and, you know, so many Jews have been slaughtered and victimized for just too long. And if there's a time for to step up, if I have the means to do that, I plan on doing that as little as I'm contributing. At the end of the day, the heroes are the ones who are on the front line, not somebody coming from America and bringing in supplies. I mean, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of um, reservists that have been called up here. They're training. Uh, many lives will likely be lost on the Israeli side. So those are the, really the heroes. Right. We look at the beautiful face of young Natalie, fresh out of high school, and we rejoice that she's free, and let's hope that she's not damaged too badly. But think of all the 18, 19, 20-year-olds on the front lines right now, and it's all caused by Jew-hating. Isn't that the root of what Hamas is? Forget the politics. Forget about colonialism. This is just good old-fashioned Jew-hating. I mean, you could say that, and that's obviously true. That seems like a simple answer to me. I mean, it was a barbaric act of terrorism, you know, that went solely towards the Jewish people. But, um, you know, the heinousness and the, just, the, just the unadulterated cruelty of it, it's yeah. just it's hard to get your arms wrapped around it. I mean, they're cutting off people's heads, they're killing children, killing babies, abducting innocent people, slaughtering people in cold blood, innocent people, all innocent people. I mean, so it's really, um, it's beyond, it's beyond the pale, frankly. I mean, this is worse than maybe even happened in Aleppo during the height of the war, uh, during the Iraq war. Right. But, uh, it's really, it's just awful. It's way too early to start assigning blame and this and that. And insofar as Gaza, it was unsustainable. 
And and it's a damn shame that we've let this situation fester to the point where poor people say, okay, we'll let the full-on Jew haters run everything. And they get intimidated too. But it's like the Nazis. I don't want to make excuses. It's like that after you discover the Holocaust, you don't talk about, well, you know, that Treaty of Versailles, that was a little brutal on the Germans. And they were a little humiliated. And I mean, come on, there's some people who just take special pleasure out of these kind of atrocities. It's awful, but it's existed throughout humanity. How do you wrestle with that? I try not to think about that. I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, there was a rabbi recently, I read an op-ed today, and um, that he was standing for, you know, much of the progressive left. I actually believe I might have even shared an article with you from the New York Times earlier today about the pro- progressive left has been has basically been silent by and large mm-hmm. and has played this moral this argument of moral equivalency. Somehow the Jews had it coming to us. But I know um, I, I, no, I, I just I, I can't get my arms around. I wish I could tell you. I wish I was smart enough to tell you. I'm not sure anybody can tell us really why these acts of terror and these. Uh, that the user, t- the Jews are always targeted and seem to be victimized. But, but right now, the difference is we have the means to fight back, and we're going to fight back. We're going to annihilate Hamas, and we're going to not annihilate Hezbollah. We're going to annihilate Islamic Jihad, and the Israeli state will survive and prosper. I'm Israel Chai. Maybe Joe Biden couldn't say that perfectly, but his speech was beautiful. I've listened to all three. The one he gave on October 10th after studying the situation and making sure everything was in place, sending battleships. Then the speech in Israel, what a great condolence call that was. I'll be there for you. And then last night from the Oval Office, while you were probably flying, I just think this is Joe Biden's finest hour. But what do you think, Victor Mitchell? I mean, it was terrific that he was uh, he came to Israel to support and provide unconditional support to the great people of Israel and the state of Israel. And today I was on when I flew out last night, uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, was on the flight with me as well, also expressing uh, support, unconditional support for Israel. So there are some American politicians that are doing uh, the right thing. And I think Joe Biden should be commended for it. Uh, I'm, I'm more interested in the hundred billion dollars of proposed aid, and hopefully that will get passed and that will get implemented and a good part, a portion of that money will uh, help the Israeli effort. It was 2018 that you were supposed to be governor of Colorado, right? <laughs> and so yes. you, were, you, you had a good chance, but the president was a Republican named Trump and you just couldn't abide him. You started falling off the Trump train early, which is a sign of your intellect, but holy cow, let's not pretend you weren't involved in politics. And and thank God you sized up Donald Trump. Tell us about your political journey since you almost became governor of Colorado. You came in second to Walker Stapleton, and a lot of people don't know your politics since then. What's been going on with you? <laughs> At the end of the day, I've always been probably more of an independent than a Republican or uh, obviously not a Democrat. But, um, you know, I'm a center right person, but I'm also an independent thinker. And I think that our elected officials should be there to solve problems, especially the more difficult ones. And these 
kind of politicians that we elect today, really all they do is talk and they they can give soaring speeches and they can play to their base, but it doesn't it doesn't move the country forward. And that's not the type of leader I was hoping to be. So when I ran, it was a lot, you know, a long time ago I ran, but the uh, it was trying to run as really an outsider candidate and trying to run a very substantive campaign of big ideas, bold ideas, mostly around reforming our our um, our higher education system in Colorado, transforming uh, some of our community colleges into worker uh, retraining, uh, providing more worker retraining, and modernizing our healthcare delivery system in the state. But uh, it didn't work out for me as governor, and I really don't have any regrets. It was a fantastic journey. Um, but I think I can be more effective, uh, hopefully, in the private sector. Are you a Republican anymore? No, no. I left the Republican uh, Party after Trump. Uh, so, and after What, what was it about Trump that you saw and are still seeing that bothered you? I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Trump and the Republican MAGA are basically flat-out fascists. That's what they are. They're anti-democratic fascists, and they don't respect uh, the rule of law. They don't respect the Constitution. And uh, it's just painstakingly hard to come to terms with that because I was a Republican my whole life up until Trump. I was a Reagan Republican, and I can't think of uh, the MAGA Republicans or the antithesis of Reagan. Yeah, they are fascists, just like Hamas. They're fascists. Fascist. Mussolini was a fascist. We've seen this model. I didn't really understand it, but it's that blend of nationalism, bigotry. And uh, I just think that it was great that you recognized that. Have you ever contemplated, hey, I could have said the right things, could have gotten the nomination, maybe I'd have been the governor of Colorado? (laughs) Was that ever an option? No, it wasn't an option for me. I mean, I know. I, I've had family members even told me after I won, you know, how dumb it was to uh, acknowledge from the get-go that I didn't vote for Trump, never would vote for Trump, and certainly was wouldn't allow Trump to campaign for me uh, if I were the nominee. And um, that probably could pot very well have cost me the nomination. But, you know, I kept my integrity. I kept my character intact. And it, keeps, it gives me the ability to sleep at night. And so, no, I have no regrets on that at all. I really don't. Right. And you've led a great life. You have a great company. Um, You're great at your business. You've been an entrepreneur. But what I admire most is your family. You're a great husband, a great father. And I don't like to say anybody's great American, but you really are because you've given your best and brightest to America. Brag on your family and your children. Oh, I don't know about that, but I've got a great wife. Um, Amy and I have been married for 33 years. We have three incredible children, really, in large part because of my wife. Our eldest is a uh, software engineer, but she became a uh, school teacher, and she teaches robotics and has something called a maker space uh, that she basically engages young people to, young women to take up uh, science, technology, engineering, and math pedigrees. My son just got promoted. He's a captain in the United States Army. He's an intelligence officer. And my youngest is a sophomore at Fordham University in New York studying social work. So they're absolutely right. I feel very blessed. We have just an incredible family. Okay. I know you're jet-lagged. What time is it over there? It is 11 o'clock. We've been, I've been up for a little over 30 hours. <laughs> well, so thank God. No, no, I, don't you care. Can tell. I, I hope I'm not speaking in such a monotone. No, no, you're doing great. And I don't care how tired you are because I want you to do one thing while you're over there in Israel. Because 
I know a few people over there, and one of them is our correspondent, Ken Toltz. And you were on a podcast with him, and you guys are great friends. And not just tennis players, but tennis competitors. I don't care if you're jet-lagged. I don't care if you didn't bring the right shoes. Or even if you don't have your racket, I want the two of you to have a match and report back. <laughs> oh, that would be a great match. I would love to take on. Ken and I have played tennis for years and years. It must be close to can be 30 years we've played together. And I, I love Ken very much. He's a really close friend. And actually, I haven't talked to him probably in a year. So I need to reach out to him. I, is, I didn't realize he's still here in Israel. Oh, I know yeah. He goes he, back he's, he's an Israeli now. He's not coming back. I will push to you his numbers, and I do hope you guys get together. Uh, you just inspired me. I'm going to send him a text first thing tomorrow morning. Okay, beautiful, Victor. Give our love to Amy and the kids. Are, are your kids worried about you? Do they say, Dad, come on, you're going to do this? You're going <laughs> to take Mom, too? Really? I mean, you can't. Life is, there's risk in anything in life, Craig. You can't think about the risk. You got to block it out. You got to be safe as best as you can, but you've got to live your life. And this is our moment to stand up for the Jewish people. And yes, my kids support me. And my kids are, of course, they're a little bit concerned, but we've been, we're very careful. And I feel very safe, to be honest with you. I think the media is way overhyped and overblown uh, the security issues in this, in the state of Israel. We walked Throughout the whole day today, we were outside the whole day. There weren't any um, uh, sirens that went off or incoming rockets. Uh, people are swimming in the Mediterranean. They're running on the beach. And people are living their lives. And the country is absolutely beautiful. And it's a very special place on Earth. Wow. And you're young enough and able enough and fit enough. And you, you can be productive because I think a lot of people are thinking like me. Well, you know me. If, if I came over there, wouldn't I just get in the way? What could I do? It's a it's a little bit chaotic and disorganized. I'll give you that. I mean, they're still, you know, they're, the country's on a war footing. So a lot of the um, merchants and the places of business and the restaurants have skeleton staffs. Um, they're getting organized with their volunteer efforts. Uh, they're having actually a volunteer expo on Sunday morning here and uh, to coordinate all the different needs throughout the country. And they're encouraging hundreds of thousands of volunteers to come forward. So we're, Amy and I are going to be attending that on Sunday morning. But um, you, you, you can make yourself useful as best as you can. But it's just even if, you know, you only modestly uh, move the ball forward, it's still nice to be amongst your own people in a time of crisis. Right. And it's sort of a condolence call, which is the decent thing to do. You know, in this time of trouble for Jews, you see how people react non-Jews and Jews like Victor Mitchell. I admire you, Victor Mitchell. Thanks for the time. And uh, of course, we'll stay in touch. Stay safe, okay? Craig, I admire you. I admire your entire family. I consider you a very close friend. And um, I just, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always. And I look forward to seeing you on the other side when I get back home. Thank you, Victor. Bye-bye. Bye. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are. 
whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey, that's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody. For all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years. And I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. My gosh, this is exciting. I get to interview Rabbi Stephen Foster. He served his entire 40-year rabbinate at Temple Emanuel. That's the place where my parents got married, although I think it was in the prior location. I've been knowing his location on Grape Street in Hilltop, Denver, and he's been a big part of not just the Denver Jewish world and Colorado, but also political aspects with his wife, the senator, the beautiful Joyce Foster, and uh, he's waded into politics when he felt it necessary Rabbi Foster, really an honor for you to be on my show, sir, especially at this critical time in Jewish history. Well, it's my pleasure to uh, to talk with you, Craig. But I, I do have to say one thing. Yes. I, I did not get involved in politics. Whenever I spoke about an issue, it was an issue. It was values. It wasn't po- politics. I consider to be party politics. And if you get into an issue... That's the issue, you know. Anyway. No, we'll get into it. Right. But sometimes one party is dominating what you perceive to be the correct side of the issue. And we will get to Amendment 2. And when Colorado (laughs) was the hate state. Boy, that was a long time ago. Yeah, but I have a long memory. And I remember this Stephen Foster stepping up then. And uh, it's appreciated because I think it's connected in a way to what we're saying from hateful Hamas today. So I agree. let's just start. Let's start with the Stephen Foster story. And I've also now been here 53 and a half years. Right. And As even, Rabbi even Emeritus. No, right? Yeah, I'm now Rabbi Emeritus for the last 13 years. So Yes. Well, okay. Are you getting smarter every day? I mean, how does it work? No, I'm just getting older. <laughs> no, but I mean, I wonder when somebody hits their zenith and wisdom, there's probably Hebrew instruction on that. Well, there could be. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, well, let me ask you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and my whole life, I mean, my early years, I went to the University of Wisconsin. And after... Uh, after uh, graduating, I went to rabbinical school in Cincinnati. 
And that's the most prominent reform rabbinical school in America. Am I right? Well, it's well, it's also well that there are three locations in the United States of the Hebrew Union College. One is in Cincinnati; that's the oldest, and the uh, second is uh, New York, and the third campus is L.A. And we have a campus in Jerusalem, um, but it's the old. Unfortunately, HUC. Um, JIR is the oldest rabbinical school now in the world because all of the European rabbinical schools, the yeshivas, um, were destroyed during World War II. What percentage of uh, Denver rabbis that I've seen come and go, do you think, came out of that Cincinnati school? Uh, which ones? The, yeah, your school. I mean, a lot of uh, your colleagues went there, right? Rabbis wearing was a student in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, Rabbi Stone, uh, my predecessor, uh, was a student at the Jewish Institute of Religion in New York before HUC and JIR merged. Um, uh, let's see, the other reform rabbis here in town, most of my assistants had been from HUC, and um, Rabbi Stone's assistants had been from HUC in Cincinnati as well. It's interesting that you're a Milwaukee to Denver person like Golda Meir. Well, yeah, she was she was in Milwaukee too. My my parents were both uh, born and raised in Milwaukee, and I, I come from an intermarriage. I really do. My father's family was Eastern European. My mother's family was Western European, all Jewish, of course. But um, they all my grandparents, all of my grandparents. And all of my wife's grandparents uh, were all born in Eastern Europe, or in Europe anyway. Ain't that something? Because we always talk in my family about my parents, who you knew, Sheldon and Barbara. Yes, they had course. a mixed marriage because he was a West Side Jew and she right. was an East Side, East Side Temple Jew, Emmanuel right. Jew. Right, I understand. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And this happens. But, uh, Here's what I figured out, that the mongrel mutts who come out of those marriages, by and large, went to George Washington High School. But that's another story. You probably yes. had a lot of congregants from there. In fact, some of my own grandchildren went there. When I went to GW, when did you get to Denver? You, you assumed the rabbinate in 1970? We came here in, in, in uh, June of 1970. Oh my gosh! Yeah, my first when I first got to drive a car after I finished GW, I would be a playground aide at Carson Elementary, right next door to Temple Emanuel. What is the history of that building? It it kind of happened before I was aware of it. When was that beautiful building built? And and tell us about the old Temple Emanuel because when I went to the Pro-Israel rally on Sunday with my yes. buddy and Temple Emanuel congregant, Dave Gunders. We rode our bikes down there, and then we went by the old Temple Emanuel on Pearl Street. And yeah, 16th I just, and Pearl. I just marveled at the architecture. Tell us about your incredible congregation and its history. Well, Temple Emanuel is now celebrating its 150th anniversary. We're the oldest synagogue in Colorado. The building on Grape Street has a cornerstone of 1956. 
And as a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, we opened the cornerstone to see what was inside. And that's another story, but uh, we did that. Um, our, 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 we've had a number of buildings, but the most famous besides where we are now was the temple on 16th and Pearl. And it was built in 1895. And the temple moved to Hilltop in 1956. And we've been there ever since. And we, of course, added on to the building um, because we could. And, and we're glad that we did because people have moved back uh, to the Hilltop area. And it's now the center of uh, Jewish life for us. It's the center of Jewish life for all of Colorado. Let's get yeah. right to what's going on because it just felt natural for all of us to get over to Temple Emanuel when Hamas was ambushed, attacked by Israel on Simcha's Torah. It was right. terrible, but we knew we're together because there's only one place that's central and that big. And with a rabbinate that's willing to open the doors on those kind of occasions. Thank Absolutely. you for that. And that's the biggest crowd I've ever seen. What about you? Yeah, well, it's it was a big, big crowd. Um, you know, and one of the reasons that we use Temple Emanuel or the community does as often is because we have the space. I mean, we have seating for well over 2,000 people. And I think altogether, including this, the auditorium, I think they were, they've said that there were about 2,500 people there that night. Um, but that's normally the place. I, I remember other times in in our history, most most assuredly was the um, the Olympic Games. Uh, we had a similar kind of crowd when the Olympic athletes were killed. Um, 1973, we had a similar crowd when Israel was um, attacked on the Yom Kippur War. And as a matter of fact, the Yom Kippur War took place or began about three hours before services did that morning. And of course, the, the temple would have been filled anyway. And it was. We had double services and people just um, wanted to gather together because there was an existential threat at the time. Just like now, this is an existential threat to this to to Israel. And we're all concerned about that. I'm sure thinking about um, all of that. And I remember being at Beth Joseph that day, and my big brother, Bill, sure. was a student abroad out of CU at Hebrew University. He told us he could hear the guns. We were scared to death. Of course, of course. he was safe. But holy cow, I've been to Israel. I had the privilege of broadcasting from there, but not like you. You've been there so many times. There may must be so many personal stories. Uh, what are you thinking? What are you feeling, Rabbi Foster? Look, I, I'm, I'm like everybody else. Um, my feelings are very mixed. On the one hand, um, I'm, there's no question about the anger that any of us feels toward what Hamas has done. And there is nothing that anybody can say that is going to make what they did on the 7th of October okay in anybody's mind, at least in most people's minds. I mean, there are a lot of people who believe that uh, Israel's getting what it deserves. We, we, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But the truth is, is that Hamas um, 
has has threatened the very existence of Israel. And for us as Jews, um, they made very clear that their interest is not in finding some peaceful way around all of this in days and weeks and years to come, as, as Jews have tried to do, not just since the establishment of the Jewish state, but all along the history of that area. Um, but Hamas made it very clear that their, that their goal um, on, on October 7th was to kill as many Jews as possible and to try to do away with the quote-unquote the Jewish state, of which 20% of its population is uh, Muslim and Palestinian. So um, the hatred that they have, not had, but have, for us as a people, makes us very, well, we're angry, we're frustrated, we're concerned about the welfare of the people who are living there, and we're concerned about what the future is going to bring. Um, this is not the first time that Israel has been in this predicament, um, uh, and this is not the first time that that people have talked about this is a concern for the existence of the of the state. And we're concerned about that. I am not a vengeful or revengeful person, although I do have to say that that part of me also says, you know, they, they ought to get what they deserve. On the other hand, you know, my, my value system is one that says all people are created in the image of God, and I don't want to see Israel um, go in and uh, not through any fault of Israel's, but because of the circumstances, um, harm a lot of innocent people. And that's that. So that's of concern to me. And I think it's of concern, by the way, to all people of good faith. And that means Israelis as well. Um, there may be some sense on the part of some Israelis that they wanted revenge. But if it's going to come at the cost of innocent lives, even the people who are on the front um, of, of this impending war would not say that they are anxious to go in and kill people. And well, look, I, I we're, think- we're off balance because I know your politics a bit, and tell me if I'm wrong, but you've been a fervent opponent of capital punishment. And I've, yes. ev- I've eventually come around to that because of people like Donald Trump, and we could talk about that later. But I bet you're thinking about who, who's, who's Donald Trump. Well, we're going to get to him because uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, haven't okay. you heard Fox News said none of this would have happened? You know, Donald, right? right. Uh, if, if, if Trump said if the election wasn't rigged, Hamas wouldn't have attacked. Anyway, let's not get distracted right now because, oi, do we have problems? I, I think Israel. Is going through grief, and that's where you are an expert. I mean, my God, you've dealt with so many funerals, so many tragedies. Oh, and, yeah, listen, of course. And so people are off kilter. I usually tell people in my job, I said, look, you just went through a trauma. Don't do anything rash because you're going to feel different 
in a few days. That's what I love about Judaism. There are these time periods set aside, but there's no time for that. We're all off balance. Help us, Rabbi. What do we do? Well, the, the other, well, what makes this so very terrible is there are 200 hostages yes. in, in, in Gaza. And, you know, um, I know that uh, the president went there yesterday and and tried to say to the Israeli government, be cautious, be careful. We don't want a lot of innocent people hurt and killed, including Israeli soldiers. I mean, I know that everyone's going to say, well, they're soldiers and they're used to it. They're not. I, I think about the fact that what Hamas did in killing 1,400 Israelis that day it was the equivalent of 400, uh, equivalent of 45,000 people dying on 9 11. For the Israeli community, 1,400, we, we look at 1,400 souls and we do not see the numbers. But if you extrapolated the numbers from 9 11, the 3,000 plus that were right. killed, in, in a, it's over 45,000 people who would have been yes. killed. And Israel is traumatized by that. And nobody in Israel doesn't know somebody who was killed, somebody who was maimed, somebody who was taken hostage. This has become a very, very widespread and personal issue for the Israelis. And I, we cannot forget that. that. Does that mean that Israel should um, level Gaza? No, I don't think so. And I also remember, you know, this Gaza stuff has only been going on for about 18 years now. Israel had, unfortunately, occupied the Gaza Strip after the 1967 war. And there was a reason for that. Egypt didn't want the Gaza Strip. And Israel was forced to take it and forced to bring healing to the people who lived there. And let's and go it, back to that, because this goes back to me performing in a Purim play at Beth Joseph, and I'm sorry you didn't come over to see it, because I was good, and somehow I got cast as Haman. And they told me the directors had played as a cross between Hitler and Nasser, because Nasser had just tried to wipe out Israel, which led to the whole Gaza Strip and all of that sort of thing. Am I right? Well, yeah, remember that that 19, um, Egypt was involved in the war of 1948, which was Israel's war for independence. And Egypt was involved in 1952 in the um, Sinai War. And is Egypt and other countries were involved in 1967. Three, three countries for sure. Um, and support of others, and that was Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. Right, and uh, Assad's old man was there, but the unquestioned leader was Nasser, am I right? And he wanted yes. to wipe out the Jewish state of Israel, so he was deserving of the well, Haman rule, right? But he, yeah, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, right, right, but my point is, if, I, if you heard a broadcaster say today that Kamel Abdul Nasser of Egypt was a great guy, what would you say about that? Well, I here's what I would say. There are two sides to Nasser, okay? Um, 
One, one was there was evil, and he was also trying to be the leader of what he thought his country wanted. Uh, don't misunderstand what right. I'm saying. I, I don't agree with what he believed, but I, I do believe he was trying to be the leader to be responsive to his own people. Right, but part of the way he pleased the people is to be a Jew hater. Am I right? And he was yes. more than and, willing to be a Jew hater. Yeah, that's correct. And besides, I, mean, I think you have to, we have to go beyond Nasser and we have to go to um, Sadat because while Sadat began that way, he did not end I, 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 but the, Right, I loved Anwar Sadat. He went where Nasser never would go. Nasser died of a heart attack, as I recall, and I, Anwar I, Sadat succeeded him. Yes, and, but he ultimately, and it was not easy for him to do that either. He got killed he, for it. I understand. Yeah. And so did, and so did Rabin. I know, but I bring it up because our friend Peter Boyles, and I'm going to insert this sound, said that Gamal Abdul Nasser was a great guy and a hero, and that I people like me got propagandized to believe he was a bad guy, and therefore I'm performing that Purim play as a little kid. Was I propagandized, or did the guy want to wipe out the Jewish state of Israel, and he launched a secret attack? In 67, 73. But he wasn't, the, and all I'm saying is, is that he was not the only one. I agree. There were so many. So that, many Jew haters. That's yes, what I, I learned from my mother. And and isn't that really what Hamas comes down to? It's not. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to interview you now. No, no, I just, I just, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I, no, I'll shut up and, and I just Listen, get worked up about this. I, I don't blame you. I, I get worked up about it too, but I, I know that the listeners are, are, are glazing over now yes. because they're listening about names that took place in history 65 years ago. That's 70 true. years ago. And for most of those people, that's no different than Hitler. I mean, Hitler was 80 years ago, but Hitler, nobody hated Jews more than Hitler. I, I mean, so, I, but I don't want to, I try not to spend my life um, complaining always about I, the Holocaust. That's although, beautiful. Although the Holocaust played and continues to play, um, a significant role in all of our lives. And, and I suppose that it always will. But um, I, I would like to move beyond that to possibilities. Please. I mean, when I, heard, when I heard the president yesterday, our president yesterday, talk about the fact that he still supports a two-state solution, I must tell you, when all is said and done, I do too. And I would hope that when all is said and done, Israel as a nation and the people of Israel will ultimately support a two-state solution. Um, I think the majority of Israelis probably would today, but the government doesn't. And just like in 1973, when the Yom Kippur War took place, Golda Meir was the prime minister, and you will remember that right after that war, not too far long after, she lost her position as being prime minister because she was held responsible for their 
um, failures of, of intelligence. And the same thing I predict will happen to uh, uh, to um, Netanyahu. I believe that. It has to happen. It has to happen for Israel to have credibility. We don't want to be, one, you and I can discuss the advisability of going into Gaza. That could be a trap. We don't want to do anything while we are angry. Bibi was so distracted before this. That's what happens when you're charged with a lot of felonies. And damn that Israel let that happen. Damn that America might let that happen. But it I, happened. I agree. And, and I, agree. I, I got to react first uh, in my Colorado Sun column to what happened. And I said, let's focus our fury on Hamas. But that was two weeks ago almost. And I said the BB Fury can wait, but I, is now the right time for the BB Fury, or do we need to wait a little more? Well, we're going to have to wait, and that's and ultimately that's going to be up to the voters in Israel, not not American Jews, to mm-hmm. uh, to make that determination. Because when all is said and done, we support Israel, we care about Israel, um, we love Israel to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and we we support Israel. We're, we're we we support Israel not because it needs our charity, but right now there's fifty thousand Israelis that have been displaced, and and there has to be support for them as well. So all of that is going to be about Bibi. That that will be the the the, the venue of of the Israeli people and the electorate in Israel. Right. And they will not stand for it mm-hmm. because that's the last year. How many people have stood in the streets of Tel Aviv and Haifa and Jerusalem complaining when when Bibi wanted to do away with the court system? Why he wanted to do it? Because he wants to relieve himself, just like others who have tried to become permanent leaders of a country have tried to do it themselves. That's what Bibi is trying to do. And Israelis will not stand for it, ultimately. I hope not. And I hope they pick the right time. Let's talk about politicians you can control, not with money or influence, but with your vote. And you do take political positions. And through your incredible rabbinate, you've gotten to know all the great leaders of Colorado on both sides of the aisle Right now, we have Jared Polis, our first Jewish governor ever. Yes. And what can you tell us about Jared Polis in this time of uh, trouble for the Jewish people? What can I tell you yes, about? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, to me, it's in a leadership position. And uh, him being there on Sunday, I, I think I, I've always felt this. In fact, I was at BMH for some debate way back when. I think it was a congressman. Just the way he came in the show and he grabbed a yarmulke, put it on his head, sat down. It looked like anybody of my era. And he's just kind of a regular Jewish guy. You know what I mean? And no, who, who are you talking Jared about? Jared Polis. Jared Polis. Oh, I, I didn't know that he walked in and put a kippon. Yes, he you know, did. At BMH, you put a yarmulke on. I don't know about good. you, but I do. I, I Listen, when I go to BMH, I put him on a yarmulke. It's a matter of respect because that is what is expected in a traditional synagogue. In my synagogue, Temple Emanuel, if someone puts one on, no one's going to tell them to take it off, not in this day and age. And 
If someone doesn't put one on, it's okay. It's a matter of free choice. And it's in a traditional synagogue, it's not so much a free choice. It's expected. So I would expect Jared to know enough, and he does know enough, to, to put on a kippah when he walks into a traditional synagogue. That, that's not unusual. Listen, I usually have a kippah in my pocket. And if I'm in a traditional synagogue, I, I don't wait for someone to say, please put on a, a yarmulke. Of course I don't. I, I'm very sensitive to that issue. Right, but, but that's part of it. I know. And so fact, is he. I didn't put a yarmulke on when I went Monday night to Temple Emanuel. And I sort okay. of thought, should I? But all I'm saying is it's, it's interesting to me that right now Colorado has three proudly Jewish leaders. But let's talk about people who can influence Israel's fate even more. And I bet you know John Hickenlooper pretty darn well. We do know each other very well. What can you tell us about how uh, Senator Hickenlooper feels? I heard him talk on Sunday. And uh, tell me what you think about our senators right now in the position that they're in. All right. First of all, I have not heard um, Senator Hickenlooper on this issue. Um, I just haven't heard him. It's not that I don't care. I care very much. But I know that he will be very supportive of the state of Israel, just as everybody in the United States Senate has been supportive. I must tell you that I was with uh, Senator Bennett the other night on Saturday night, this last Saturday night, and he is very much um, supportive of the state of Israel. He cares very much. A number of years ago, when um, um, Shimon Peres was honored by the uh, United States Congress, um, Senator Bennett invited me. He had four tickets. He invited Joyce and me to be in New York, in Washington, to see that um, award being given to Shimon Peres. So I have to tell you, um, Michael Bennett, who has his mother's Jewish, his mother's a survivor of the Holocaust, he is a very committed human being, although he's not Jewish himself, but he's very committed. Committed to How the come state if of his Israel. mom's Jewish, he's not Jewish? Well, he he wasn't raised Jewishly. But by Jewish law, doesn't it flow well, matrilineally well, regardless? It, 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 it I, depends, I, mean, I would have thought you could have gotten his daughters to go to Temple Emanuel. Well, let me tell you how liberal Jews, most reformed Jews, and most Reconstructionist Jews view this issue. I personally, because I helped to write what is now known as the patrilineal decision for the reform movement, we in the reform movement believe that a child that is born of A, one Jewish parent, and with a capital A, and raised Jewishly, is Jewish. But however, if I would think that a, that a child was born of a Jewish mother, and raised in the religion, let's say, of the father, I would consider the parents to have the right to raise their children as they will, and I would consider that child to be the religion of the, the, the parents, whatever they choose. Therefore, Michael Bennett was raised not Jewishly. He was raised in a different tradition, and I respect his parents' right to make that decision. I do. Okay. So now my traditional colleagues would say, no, that's not true. My traditional colleagues would say, if you're born of a Jewish mother, you're Jewish. 
I understand that. I respect that from their point of view, but it is not my point of view. So it, it's important for us to recognize that there are different ways, even about that. So I'm not saying Michael Bennett is Jewish because his mother um, had Jewish ovaries. I, I, I just I just can't believe that. And I must tell you, when we wrote the, the decision on patrilineal descent, much of what we talked about was the fact that Hitler said it didn't matter who your parent was. Hmm. If you had one Jewish grandparent, you were Jewish. Mm-hmm. Any Jewish grandparent. So if we're good enough to be killed as Jews because some dictator believed that that's who we were, I believe that parents who choose to raise their children Jewish, even if the Jewish parent is the father, I think they have a legitimate right to do that. And I will defend that forever because I think it was the right thing on the reform movement's part to do that. But that's the difference between orthodoxy and reform. I know, but it's cool for me to hear that. And the reform movement has been so important in America. And during our prior terrible time of trouble, the run-up to World War II and the Holocaust, wasn't it reform rabbi, was it Stephen Wise who was? There were two rabbis, and, and we should, they're both reform rabbis. One was Stephen S. Wise, who formed also the Jewish Institute of Religion. Remember, I talked at the beginning. HUC and JIR uh, formed a partnership in the 50s. But he, he started the Jewish Institute of Religion, which was a liberal rabbinic school. He started it in New York. He was one of the great um, f- forces that helped to get the state of Israel founded. And the other one, and we say this at Temple Emmanuel with some degree of pride as well. The other one was Abba Hillel Silver, who was the great reform rabbi in Cleveland, Ohio. And before coming to Denver, when he was a younger rabbi, after he left the chaplaincy, Rabbi Stone served as the assistant rabbi for eight years to Abba Hillel Silver. But between the two of them, Abba Hillel Silver, great reform rabbi, and and Stephen S. Weiss, great reform rabbi. Yes, they were the most influential clergy to help get the state of Israel started. No right. question. And also rewriting a lot of rules because Temple Emmanuel, you guys did things ahead of your time, like uh, have an organ, I don't know, and a lot more English. It was just uh, not everybody had to keep kosher. I understand. It's one of the, those are the differences between a reform synagogue and a traditional synagogue. It's a, the principle goes like this. In a traditional synagogue, one adheres to what they consider, and I'm not being critical about this, they consider to be God's word. And if that means, yes, you keep kosher because they believe God said you should keep kosher, that's fine. In Reform Judaism or liberal Judaism, all of these rituals are a matter of personal choice and informed decision making. So, for example, I'm not an Orthodox rabbi. I'm a liberal rabbi. 
But my wife and I, for the first five years of our marriage, we kept the kosher home. We kept the kosher home, not because I thought that God wanted that of me. I did it for a different reason. Informed choice was my choice to say I wanted to keep a kosher home because as a rabbi, I wanted anyone to feel comfortable eating in my home. And I didn't want anybody excluded from my home because of kashrut. But the purpose of my keeping or our keeping of kosher was not because this was the rule set by God at Mount Sinai. It's because I believe that we have a right to make these decisions for ourselves, things that have meaning. And that is a principle of difference between any Orthodox faith, and I'm saying any Orthodox faith because I I believe the same holds true within the Catholic Church or within Christianity or within Islam. There are liberals in the religious traditions and there are conservatives in those religious traditions. And both have a perspective. And I think we have to recognize those perspectives as being very, very important in principle. So That's beautiful. Yeah. So much for so much for my lecture on liberalism. No, no, it's good. Informed decision making applied to the rules of Kashrut, which I, I don't know that much about Judaism, just a thimble. But the reason why Jews have to keep kosher, a lot of people say it's for a health reason, or pigs are dirty, or but it, it's just because God said so. That that's the answer, right? And so for me. It's like when my parents said, because we said so, it was never quite good enough for me. There needed to be a little more logic. And speaking of informed decision-making, how can you do that without tasting bacon? It's delicious. Uh, (laughs) Let's not go there. I mean, Joyce and I, we do not keep a kosher home any longer. We stopped a number. We've been married 58 years, and most of our life together, Uh, We have not kept a kosher home because the people for whom we wanted to keep kosher wouldn't eat in our home anyway. So that's a long story. But we still don't bring forbidden foods into our home. That's something that I believe in. And, And even though some in my family would say, oh, come on, dad, it's okay. For me, it's not okay. I don't want to bring forbidden foods into the house. And whatever my family, chooses to eat someplace else, that's up to them. I'm not going to judge that. But right. I, I was talking about bacon at the breakfast buffet at uh, some fine. hotel. Right, right. But it's the same as my parents. They wouldn't bring it in the house. And somehow they decided to keep kosher on Passover and bring in two sets of plates. Fine. And it was just their tradition. I know why, because they wanted to have my dad's side of the family over I for understand. the Passover. Right. Well, tell me something. You grew up at you grew up, you grew up at at the uh, Beth at Joseph, Joseph with, with Rabbi right. Goldberger. Right. I understand. May he rest in peace. He was yes. such a wonderful human being. You, but your mom was raised at Temple Emmanuel. Yes. Because your parents made a conscious decision that they whether your dad your dad didn't force it on them. Perhaps your dad said, it means more to me than it means to you. And that's what we're going to do. Whatever it is, that's how intermarriages work. In my case, my father came out of a traditional home, but my grandparents were not very 
observant, even though I got the only parrot to film that I owned from my grandfather. But the truth was, my mother's family was much more involved at the temple in Milwaukee, which was also called Temple Emmanuel. That's where I grew up, because my mother's family was very involved. My parents decided to raise my sister and me in a liberal synagogue. Now, and that's, yeah. that's the way it goes. Right. It, it does. Um, that, doesn't Emmanuel mean God be with you? It means God is with us. God Emmanuel. With us. Yeah, God is with us. Wow. And, and, and I just, you brought up Rabbi Goldberger, and what a memory he is in my life. My bar mitzvah rabbi, and then when I was prosecutor, I even talked to him about capital punishment. I talked with you about that. I don't know if you remember when I was running for DA, I came to Temple Emanuel, and I we do. talked, and my Uncle Mel's picture was right over your head. I remember that, too. But uh, that was a long time ago. Rabbi Stone, who married my parents, he wasn't just another rabbi, was he? Uh, talk about your predecessor and your successor, Rabbi Black, is really something. Temple Emmanuel, what a tradition I had. Well, rabbi, we've got a long, yes. Yeah, we've, we've got a long history, but I want to. Uh, before I talk about Rabbi Stone, I do have to talk about my rabbi as growing grew Please. up. His name was Herbert Friedman, and before he came to Milwaukee, he was the rabbi in Denver at Temple Emmanuel. He was. William S. Friedman's assistant, and after World War II, he was a and he was a chaplain. He came to take over the synagogue here in Denver, and then he left Denver in 1953, went to Milwaukee, became my rabbi, and I grew up with him until he left, and then he became the head of the United Jewish Appeal because UJA guaranteed through fundraising that Israel was going to become a state. And he went to, in 1956, Herbert Friedman, my rabbi, who was also a rabbi here in Denver, became the head of the United Jewish Appeal and raised money to help Israel get started from 1956 on, although Israel was started in 1948. Rabbi Stone. No, no, can I just stop you on Rabbi Friedman, when you say my rabbi, does that mean your bar mitzvah rabbi? No, no. He left already by the time I was bar mitzvah. He was only in Milwaukee for three years. And you can imagine, he went there in 1953. And by 1956, which is when my bar mitzvah was, he was already leaving to become a part of the UJA, United Jewish Appeal. And um, my rabbi was a man by the name of Dudley Weinberg with whom I was very, very close. And his son and I grew up together. Avram, his son, may he rest in peace. Avram used to spend his weekends at our house. Um, and he always referred to my parents as his foster parents. <laughs> See, that's why, you know, did you have rabbis in your family before you became? No, 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 no. So, so probably no. Rabbi Friedman inspired you. Yeah, he, no, he did. He did inspire me. Um, because my parents went to synagogue every Friday night. And here's the story. When Rabbi Friedman came to Milwaukee, it was in the middle of McCarthyism. And William or, or Herbert Friedman was never afraid to speak about what was going on. And Friday night he would speak and he would give an update on 
what was happening with Joseph McCarthy, because he was the United States senator from our state in Wisconsin. And the next day, whatever Rabbi Friedman said on Friday night was quoted in the papers in the Sentinel. And it had a profound effect upon the people in Wisconsin. And that was when I really learned that you can have an influence by being a rabbi. You don't have to be in a, you don't have to run for office, but you can speak to the issues of the day. And because we are speaking from a values point of view, that can be a good thing to happen. Are you trying to influence people in the way they yes. think and act yes. and talk? Yeah, I yes. know that's yes. cool. And it, it, absolutely, and, and and through um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned um, a no on two campaign. Yes, um, that was 1992 when the, the state of Colorado eventually voted um, to exclude gays and lesbians um, from being able to uh, have a claim against the state because all people wanted was was um, civil rights to be recognized for who they were. I was asked by the by the no on two people if I would serve as the state chairman um, to, together with Jim Peters, Reverend Peters from New Hope Baptist Church. And we were the state chairs of the no on two campaign in 1992. We lost our bid, but eventually was won in this in the uh, Supreme Court. And it, the, the the state vote got overturned, which we were very proud of, but it took a while. But I was very proud to serve as the chairman of the No on Two campaign because I, I didn't look at it. Yes, I saw it as Jewish values, that everybody counts, but I saw it as my job. And when I went to my board of trustees and I said, I didn't ask permission. I told them I was being asked to do this, and I asked for their advice. And the board of trustees said, boy, you were asked to do this. We'd be surprised if you said no. So I took that to mean, yeah, go ahead, do it. And I did. And uh, it was it was an important thing for me, for myself. For myself, not for anybody else. It was for me. Maybe you could be a speaker of the house, too, because... Boy, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, but it, it, it's good that you did that, and you were definitely on the right side of history. And uh, Mazel Tov and Kenahora, but it was divisive even in the Jewish community. Oh, I, bet, very, I bet you took very. some flack, and I bet some people quit Temple Emmanuel as a result. Listen, over the years, people have joined and quit over things that their rabbi might have said. And to the same holds true today. I mean, Rabbi Black is my successor. And I'm sure that there are some things that he has said over the last 13 years that have angered people. Um, and that's just the way it is. If we are afraid to speak our minds, then we have a problem. I want to tell you, and I'm looking at it right now. It's on my off in my office here at home. And also in my office at the temple, although I'm giving up that office at the temple because they need the space. But I have a phrase on my wall. It's by Rabbi Israel Salanter. And it says the following. A rabbi whose community does not disagree with him 
is not really a rabbi, and a rabbi who fears his community is not really a man. In other words, there may be things your congregation doesn't agree with. That doesn't mean everybody, but there's going to be dissent on any public issue, but you can't be afraid to speak about it. Be a man. Talk about the things that are right. And I have had Israel Salanter's words on my office wall wherever I am for the last 53 years. You are a beautiful speaker. People can hear it now. And your sermons are extraordinary. Can I play? You have a uh, YouTube up on your Yom Kippur speech this last year. Both your boys were very proud of you, uh, and I would be too. Uh, You've still got it, Rabbi. And you're the fourth Rabbi. That's my episode 177. I had Rabbi Rhines, Rabbi Swearin, who you discussed. I had Rabbi Dolan, and now I have you. And uh, you all wait, have— Wait, 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 yes. wait. Why? Why? Wait, wait, wait. I, I don't understand this, Craig. Yes. Why did you have Zwerin and Rhines and, and Dolan before me? Well, because I've been a member at Temple Sinai, <laughs> and I've been a member at the Alliance. Rabbi I'm Dolan jo- was there for my Brit Milas. And, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yes. It's, uh, it, it took a while. You know, I was a Beth Joseph Jew, and my dad— my dad always said, why do they have an organ at Temple Emmanuel? It sounds like a church. So what can I tell you? But but he got married there. And let's not slight Rabbi Stone, because I bet he taught you some lessons about standing up. What were the yeah. big controversies during uh, his time? I bet he was there during Vietnam and all of that. Yes, and so did Rabbi William S. Friedman from 1895 until 19. 19- 39 when he had a stroke. William S. Friedman was the one who started what has become known as the um, uh, United Way. It was then Community Chess. And and he was one of the founders. I mean, to be a clergyman in a big city, in a small city, has a responsibility. Make sure that you have your voice heard so that it can be part of the marketplace of ideas and let people make up their own minds. But you have to bring those values to bear. And that's all we were trying to do. And that's no, all- no, no, yeah. there is a different school of thought, and I bet you've run into this, which is, you know what? Maybe the Rabbi Foster should not lead the fight on Amendment 2. Maybe it's better for Jews not to be in top leadership positions in Colorado. Maybe we should lay low. I mean, you've well, heard that, haven't you, Rabbi? Of course, of course, and don't forget, um, I have somebody with whom I live. She was the first Jewish woman on the Denver City Council. She was the first Jewish woman to serve um, in the, the state Senate. I mean, yes, you could say that about anybody. And it's a difficult position to be. You know better than I do, Craig, how difficult those positions can be. And you have to be held to a standard. But if someone wants to know about that, they don't have to buy my book. I'm willing to give it. Uh, we have a book that we wrote, the two of us together, called The Rabbi and the Senator Sleep Together. Isn't it you... R-rated, though? No, it's not R-rated. Um, X-rated? It, no, no, for sure not X-rated. Okay. Um, anyway, but it's, you know, look, it, it's the interface of religion and politics. And we were proud of, we've been proud of the years that we have spent in this community. 
and the stands that we have tried to take? Are we perfect in what we've done? Absolutely not. But we've tried to do the right things. And uh, again, you know better than most, Craig, um, because sometimes there have been difficulties for both of us. Well, I don't know about that. I, I think you're a lot smarter than I am on a lot of these things. And you have a big congregation. I don't. I've been a public commentator, but you've licked thousands of people in the eye. And so so did Rabbi Stone. How long did he have the pulpit? Who was this guy who Ra- married Rabbi, my parents? Yeah. Rabbi Stone came here in uh, let's see, right after Rabbi Friedman left. So he was here in 1956, and he retired. In 1981, so he was here 25 years, um, and I took over. I had been with him for 11 years when he retired, because I was the assistant associate that long, and um, and I've been here now almost 54 years. There's a long history of of longevity of rabbis in this community, and I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is, in my opinion. That for many, many years, Denver was on the beaten path when people from the East or West Coast were going to those other places, all these Jewish organizations. And about the time that they were over the city of Denver, maybe uh, making one of their pit stops, it was over Denver. Denver was always a forgotten place. And I believe that rabbis here, Rabbi Lederman, Rabbi Goldberger, Rabbi Zwerin, Rabbi Wagner, Rabbi Stone, me, Rabbi, all of us, we've all been here a long time. And I think that our congregations get attached to their rabbis and they want to. And that's just, uh, and gives us a chance to also know people. And therefore, I think gives us a chance to speak our minds, knowing that everything that we say it's not a matter of whether or not we're going to lose our job. I, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I've been here a long time. Okay, I've never had a contract. Wow. Never. I never wanted a. Contract. I hope you got paid. I got paid, and they were very kind to me, and very, you know, I, I don't get paid what the rabbis in New York or Washington D.C. or San Francisco get paid because our cost of living isn't the same. But yes, I got paid, and and they they were very kind to me, but I never had a contract, and I never wanted a contract. Now, that's a good opportunity, okay, because you officiated a lot of weddings. In fact, you might be at the wedding I'm going to Saturday night. I don't know, but what is the standard to give a clergyman for performing a service uh, like not, that? I'm not going to All right, I was just, I thought I'm, I'd take a but, shot. I thought I'd take a not, shot. Well, don't, because... Um, no, I know. That's the kind of thing the, I asked my dad. So I have a good a idea. I think about... Well, let me yes. tell you, the, I'm going to give you an answer, but I'm yes. not going to give you a fee. Please. If a person does not belong to a synagogue... Yes. ...and they want a rabbi for a life cycle event, the rabbinical council has set fees for those events. If a person belongs to a synagogue, there is no requirement... For a member who asks for the services of their rabbi, there's no requirement for them to give us an honorarium. Sometimes people do, and sometimes people don't. But non-members, yeah, they should be paid. 
Okay, can I ask for some rabbinical advice? Because you guys have the Emanuel Cemetery right behind yes. where I grew up. I grew up between GW and Fairmount Cemetery. I, in All Winston right. Downs. Lee Downs, to be more specific, okay? On the other side of exposition, but the same okay. difference, right. okay? Yeah. Yeah, and my uh, Temple Emanuel grandparents, the Sontags, they are buried there. In yes. fact, I was, okay. Okay. But my paternal side is at Mount Nebo in Commerce City, where I only really want to go to the dog races with my dad and my brother. Okay, so I went there a little in Adams County, but that's where they're buried. And that's a kosher cemetery, excuse me, Rose Hill Cemetery in, in Commerce right. City. And okay, Rose, and, Rose Hill. So, so should I be buried in a kosher cemetery or is Temple Emanuel Cemetery good enough? Make a difference. Make a difference to who now we're getting into religion here. So, yes, I mean you're a rabbi, so I'm just yeah, wondering. Okay. So let me just tell you that the difference between those Orthodox cemeteries and Mount Nebo's in between is that there are certain requirements that the Orthodox cemeteries have that our cemetery doesn't have. Again, it's a matter of choice. So I'll give you an example. Caskets traditionally, according to Jewish tradition are very plain. There's no metal in them because a casket um, with metal, you know, metal is a is a symbol of war, not of peace. Okay, so most or all Orthodox cemeteries require that a person's burial container be kosher. That means a plain pine box with uh, no nails. No, no metal. There are some other rules, et cetera, about preparation of the body, et cetera. Our cemetery is different. Our cemetery says, look, if you want to, and that's what makes it non, non-Orthodox. If you want to bury your loved one in a metal casket, it's not something that I want for myself. I'm just saying that. But if somebody wants it, I'm not there to tell them, you know, their time of need, no, you can't do that because I don't like it. So my job as a rabbi is to try to bring comfort to families when they're in need. In our cemetery, we allow for the burial of caskets that are metal. We allow for the preparation not to have to be done by the burial society, but can be done by the mortuary. And and that's the way it is. And in Orthodox cemeteries, they have some rules. In our cemetery, if somebody wants to be buried with all the traditional rules, they can be. That's the difference. But if you want to be buried in one of those traditional cemeteries, you have to abide by Jewish law, halakha. Same as kashrut. It's the same principle. And so I'm not telling you where to be buried. Um, that's not my place. It's your place to feel comfortable wherever it is that you're buried. And for you um, and, and your family to make that decision together. I, as a rabbi, should know enough to say to a family that wants to, let's say, even cremation. We allow for the burial of cremains in our cemetery, but that's against Jewish law. But if a family wants to do that, am I really going to stand in their way 
and say, no, I'm not going to help you because you're not doing it the way I think you should do it. That's not what I'm about. I'm about making informed choices for myself and hopefully for other people to make informed choices for themselves. I'm thinking about all those beautiful trees at Vermont. Uh, I bet that was selected hundreds of years ago. It's an arboreum uh, along the Highline Canal, which I've always lived near there. So Yeah, but you have to know that, that Emanuel Cemetery yes. was, was part of what is um, now the Botanic Gardens. Right. And so, and so is the Archdiocese Cemetery. And a number of years ago, they were doing some digging there, mm-hmm. and they came up with some bones which were supposed to have been moved. And I called the archbishop at the time because our cemeteries were right next to each other. And he said, what do you think we should do? And I said, oh, I think we should make sure that we bury these remains again. He said, okay, go ahead. And I did. I buried them in our cemetery um, in, a, in a grave because I think that's what should have been done. So Right, that was the original graveyard, and then it got a little yes. too dry. I, I've heard that story. I used to advertise for Paramount on the radio, so that's another. I'm leaning right. that direction a little. I don't know. I hope I don't have to make that decision for yeah. a long time, and I thought it was cute when you said, wherever you're going to feel comfortable. Frankly, I don't feel comfortable being buried anywhere, but... Well, I understand. You, I often say, you I often say, I often say, people ask me all the time, Rabbi, what's going to happen when I die? I say I have two answers to that. Number one, I don't know because I've never been there. And number two, I am not anxious to find out. Right. <laughs> and I mean that, I mean that as, as fun, but the truth is I'm not anxious to find out. I don't want to know. And and we're laughing about that. I could not agree more. And while my dad was kind of passing away, I asked him, you know, his favorite sports guys, this and that. But I said, do you believe in an afterlife? He's like, I don't know. You know, it's Uh right. But that's the Jewish answer. But other religions are so certain of it. And these people who attacked the Jewish people of Israel, they thought, they were going to get a heavenly reward. I mean, what do we do with that part of religion, Rabbi? I understand. And I had a professor at rabbinical school who said, all religions, all religions are a response to the fact that we're going to be, that we're going to die. And I think that's true. And there are as many different answers as there are religions or people. So everybody has their point of view. I just always tell people I think they have to live by their point of view. Whatever it happens, not to kill people. I don't mean that. But I mean if you think there's a, an afterlife and you want to be, you want to do the right, do the right things in this world because that's what's going to get you there. It's okay with me. <laughs> yeah, I like that attitude too. I just wish there weren't so many Jew haters, and we could talk about politics, this or that. But damn, some Jew haters have caused so much harm to our people. And it happened, you mentioned Munich. That was pure Jew hatred. Of course. And and, and then what happened with Hamas, it's in their charter. They want to kill you, me, and every Jew in the world. And they lay out their reasons. Just remember that that the new anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. That's anti-Israel is the new anti-Semitism. And it's very easy for many people 
to get involved that way. So, I saw the old anti-Semitism kill KOA radio talk show host Alan Burke. I was a very young deputy in the Denver DA's office when it happened. Never met yeah. Alan Berg. I had heard him on the radio. I would listen to him broadcast while I was driving to Yom Kippur services, thinking, gosh, can't you take the day off? You're a Jewish guy. Of course, I'm driving, which is a sin, whatever. And then he gets killed because he was a Jew. And you officiated right. at his funeral, and he got killed because of Jew haters. Same thing, am I right? Yes, that's correct. And let me tell you, We've all been threatened at one time or another. I remember a time, and you may remember it, um, when there was a huge debate over whether or not the crash was an appropriate decoration for the city and county of Denver in the city and county building. And I stood up and I said, and I went to court over this, no, I do not think it's an appropriate state symbol because you know, people observe Christmas. Of course they do. I just don't think it's a, I just don't think it should be um, a, a holiday that, or that the crash should be the symbol on, on our city and county building. On the and courthouse became, where I was working every day. And yes, I know. By, and, yeah. that, and that became a huge debate. And I want you to know that um, I was, I was threatened by a number of people Guns were, we have guns and we're going to come after you. And I had to have my family taken out of the house oh. for some period of time because if people don't agree, and that's not just about Jew hatred, it's about disagreeing with a point of view. And that's what's led this country now into such a terrible place. I rode my bike down to that rally at the Capitol. And it was beautiful to see every state official there, Governor Polis, Senator Hickenlooper, yeah. Senator Bennett, and our Congress people, not Lauren Boebert. She wasn't there. Doug Lamborn sent a spokesperson. Anyway, uh, on the way back, I already said I rode by Temple Emanuel, but I, I kept going east and I ride by that 1400 block of Adams where Allen Berg was shot dead. And it just haunts me. And I know that you were pressed into service. Did you know Allen Berg? How did you get involved yeah, with the funeral? Tell us tell us what well, you knew, because I never knew him. I have interviewed well, his ex-wife, Judith. I've talked yes, to his was, good friend, David Savitz. I, I just yes. tried to get, and Al Zen was a good friend of his. I've heard about that. Go ahead. Well, Al, Alan, uh, Alan's wife, of course, grew up at the temple. Her parents were te members of the temple. Um, Alan was not. I mean, he was uh, he was he was proud to be Jewish, but he was not observant in any way. He didn't believe in religion, which was fine. You know, um, I got not I didn't get involved because uh, because he was a member of the temple. I got involved in spite of the fact but he was a community figure. And um, I tried to we we always have had the policy that if a person belongs to the synagogue, they can have their funeral there, but he didn't. And but I, I asked um, the appropriate forces at the temple at the time, could we make an, a a change because of who he was and and what he meant in the community? And so we had the funeral at the temple. Um, but you know he was not a part of the temple, but a lot of his friends were. And uh, yes, I knew him. 
um, we had spoken many, many times together. Well, Rabbi, I do appreciate your time, and I'm just looking for any wisdom you might impart as Israel de- deals with this dire situation. We turn to smart people like you for wisdom. Well, I am one of those people who hopes that the leadership in the state of Israel will be very, very cautious about what they do in the next few weeks. Um, if they kept the, the forces, and they have to be careful because I don't want, I don't want the people who are being um, held hostage to be uh, executed. And I'm afraid that that's what might happen. So I hope Israel will be careful, knowing full well that if she's careful and does not invade, that will be an excuse for Hamas and Hezbollah again. Well, let's pray for the best, Rabbi. I really appreciate your time. Really honored by it. Thank you, sir. And give my best to your family, okay? I will. I will. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hi, Craig. Hey, Troubadour. How are you, Craig? Good. Band on the run. I know you are traveling. Thank you for making a little time 
quite of a week. Course. Did you see two hostages released? Americans. That was uh, the first good news I've seen in some time. Yes, still psychological warfare. What about the others? Is it what like, about the others? That's yes. true. But, but at least there's two yes. that are going to be safe. We value every life. And uh, you, you're with family on the East Coast. And uh, yet you gave us the classic Dave Gunder song. It's been a while since the horrors of October 7th. The horrors continue. But love. I mean, the Beatles said love is the answer. Not always, but it's got to break through. And I felt love when I saw the pictures of those two American Jewish women being released. That's right. That's right. And sometimes love is the only thing we can look to. I mean, it's like you say, it's been a little while, but it hasn't been very long since the atrocities that happened to the Israelis. Ultimately. For people to live together, they're going to have to let love be the, the ruling guide, love for each other, for our humanity. And I know that it's easy to say now, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, that, that I have any answers for now, but, but um, ultimately to get through the pain, love is what, is what we need to, to, to turn to. As I recall, you wrote this for the widow of... One of your best yes. pals, yes. So well, this this was for yes. This this song was written for friends who lost their their son in a tragic accident, mm. uh, and um, and I I originally Rachel was small at the time. Originally, I I had different lyrics, and she told me she looked up at me and said, "Daddy, you can't sing those lyrics to that. It's too sad." And I thought. You know what? From the mouth of babes, I listened to my daughter. She was probably all of about seven at the time, and I rewrote it from a from a sad place to a more hopeful place. There you go. And yeah. now you're out there with Rachel. Say hello, and I just think it's great to make human contact. You know, Zoom is one thing, but Joe Biden going to Israel for a condolence call. Yes. I, I thought that was great and smart. You know that hospital report, when it first came out, it's almost when he's driving to the uh, runway, uh, about to take off. And then yes. then he got some intelligence. It, on Twitter, you could see pretty fast IDF denied it, and they had some evidence. But a lot of people would have called off the trip. Other people on uh, in Arab countries did that. But Joe Biden had the fortitude to keep going. And he came. It was great. Went. Yes. I, I I think he's been amazing. I really do. I can't his, agree more. His talk, you know, his speech Thursday night, his visit to Israel, and just his steadfast, um, you know, affinity and and commitment to Israel it makes me happy that that we have our president on on you know on the side of Israel. And and calling out Hamas for what it is. And on the side of the Jewish people and calling out Hamas for just wanting to kill Jews. That's, That's in right. their charter. And they make explanations as to why, including blood libels. And they think we're yes. passing it down through our blood. And that's why they need to eliminate our blood, bad blood. It's like Donald Trump talking about 
Uh, people coming in to poison the blood of America. Who talks like that? Nazis, Hamas, but not Joe Biden. And you know what? With your permission, after we play your beautiful song, Love Has Way, I love that song, but right afterwards, we're going to hear in succession Joe Biden's speech on October 10th from the White House shortly after it happened. October 12th in Israel, he's going to come up and give another speech that was beautiful for the Jewish people. And again, on Thursday night, from the Oval Office, an address to the nation, weaving in our defense of Ukraine as well. I loved it. And Troubadour, thanks for saluting him, too. I, I think and Joe thanks Biden... Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, Craig, and thanks for inviting me last weekend to the uh, to the, to the Israel, uh, pro-Israel rally there on the Capitol steps. I appreciate that. And it was, uh, it was well worthwhile. Quite a bike ride. And yeah. I think it was being shared that we went by the old Temple Emanuel trying to yep. get some air in my tire afterwards. Yeah. It may have been beshared. <laughs> yeah, that means fate. It's meant to be. Troubadours, yeah, to safe be. travels. Shabbat shalom. And be well, uh, I love being with you at that rally. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. So without further ado, here you have it. Love Has a Way by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. way of healing the heart It strengthens the will when our spirit lies broken And no word can be spoken to ease the pain Love has a way of not letting go Feel it when you dance 
Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy these powerful speeches by the President of the United States. As an American Jew, they make me proud. I hope they make you proud, too. Good afternoon. You know, there are moments in this life, and I mean this literally, when the pure, unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world. People of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. The bloody hands of the terrorist organization Hamas, a group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. This was an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Among them, at least 14 American citizens killed. Parents butchered, using their bodies to try to protect their children. Stomach-turning reports of being babies being killed. Entire families slain. Young people massacred while attending a musical festival to celebrate peace. To celebrate peace. Women raped, assaulted, paraded as trophies. Families hid their fear for hours and hours, desperately trying to keep their children quiet to avoid drawing attention, and thousands of wounded, alive but carrying with them the bullet holes and the shrapnel wounds and the memory of what they endured. You all know these traumas never go away. There's still so many families desperately waiting to hear the fate of their loved ones, not knowing if they're alive or dead or hostages. Infants in their mother's arms, grandparents in wheelchairs, Holocaust survivors abducted and held hostage. Hostages whom Hamas has now threatened to execute 
in violation of every code of human morality. It's abhorrent. The brutality of Hamas, these bloodthirstiness brings to mind the worst, the worst rampages of ISIS. This is terrorism. But sadly, for the Jewish people, it's not new. This attack has brought to the surface painful memories and the scars left by a millennia of anti-Semitism and genocide of the Jewish people. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination. Its stated purpose is the annihilation of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. They use Palestinian civilians as human shields. Hamas offers nothing but terror and bloodshed with no regard to who pays the price. The loss of innocent life is heartbreaking. Like every nation in the world, Israel has the right to respond, indeed has a duty to respond to these vicious attacks. I just got off the phone with a third call with Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I told him, the United States experience with Israel experiencing, our response would be swift, decisive, and overwhelming. We also discussed how democracies like Israel and the United States are stronger and more secure when we act according to the rule of law. Terrorists pur purposely target civilians, kill them. We uphold the laws of war, the law of war. It matters. There's a difference. Today, Americans across the country are praying for all those families that have been ripped apart. A lot of us know how it feels. It leaves a black hole in your chest when you lose family. Feeling like you're being sucked in. The anger, the pain, the sense of hopelessness. This is what they mean by a human tragedy, an atrocity on an appalling scale. But we're going to continue to stand united, supporting the people of Israel who are suffering unspeakable losses and opposing the hatred and violence of terrorism. My team has been in near constant communication with our Israeli partners and partners all across the region and the world from the moment this crisis began. We're surging additional military assistance, including ammunition and interceptors, to replenish Iron Dome. We're going to make sure that Israel does not run out of these critical assets to defend its cities and its citizens. My administration has consulted closely with Congress throughout this crisis. And when Congress returns, we're going to ask them to take urgent action to fund the national security requirements of our critical partners. This is not about party or politics. This is about the security of our world, the security of the United States of America. 
We now know that American citizens are among those being held by Hamas. I've directed my team to share intelligence and deploy additional experts from across the United States government to consult with and advise Israeli counterparts on hostage recovery efforts. Because as President, I have no higher priority than the safety of Americans being held hostage around the world. The United States has also enhanced our military force posture in the region to strengthen our deterrence. The Department of Defense has moved the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group to the Eastern Mediterranean and bolstered our fighter aircraft presence. And we stand ready to move in additional assets as needed. Let me say again to any country, any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word. Don't. Don't. Our hearts may be broken, but our resolve is clear. Yesterday, I also spoke with the leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and UK to discuss the latest developments with our European allies and coordinate our united response. This comes on top of days of steady engagement with partners across the region. We're also taking steps at home. In cities across the United States of America, police departments have stepped up, security around centers for, of Jewish life. And the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Bureau of Investigation are working closely with state and local law enforcement and Jewish community partners to identify and disrupt any domestic threat that could emerge in connection with these horrific attacks. This is a moment for the United States to come together to grieve with those who are mourning. Let's be real clear. There is no place for hate in America. Not against Jews, not against Muslims, not against anybody. We reject, we reject, what we reject is terrorism. We condemn the indiscriminate evil, just as we've always done. That's what America stands for. You know, just over 50 years ago, I was thinking about it this morning, talking to the Secretary of State, the Vice President in my office. Over 50 years ago, as a young senator, I visited Israel for the first time as a newly elected senator. And I had a long, long trip a meeting with Golda Meir in her office just before the Yom Kippur War. And I guess she could see the consternation on my face as she described what was being faced, they were facing. We walked outside in that, uh, that sort of hallway outside her office to have some photos. She looked at me all of a sudden and said, would you like to have a photograph? And so I got up and followed her out. We were standing there silent, looking at the press. She could tell, I guess, I was concerned. She leaned over and whispered to me. She said, don't worry, Senator Biden. We have a secret weapon here in Israel. My word is what she said. We have no place else to go. We have no place else to go. For 75 years, Israel has stood as the ultimate guarantor of the security of Jewish people around the world so that the atrocities of the past could never happen again. And let there be no doubt 
the United States has Israel's back. We will make sure the Jewish and democratic state of Israel can defend itself today, tomorrow, as we always have. It's as simple as that. These atrocities have been sickening. We're with Israel. Let's make no mistake. Good afternoon. <clears throat> Please have a seat. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, we'll not let you ever be alone. Most importantly, the, uh, I know the recent terrorist assault on the people of this nation has left a deep, deep wound. More than 1,300 innocent Israelis killed, including at least 31 American citizens by the terrorist group Hamas. Hundreds. Hundreds of young people at a music festival. The festival was for peace, for peace, gunned down as they ran for their lives. Scores of innocents, from infants to elderly grandparents, Israelis and Americans, taken hostage. Children slaughtered, babies slaughtered, entire families massacred. Rape, beheadings, bodies burned alive. Hamas committed atrocities that recall the worst ravages of ISIS unleashing pure, unadulterated evil upon the world. There's no rationalizing it, no excusing it, period. The brutality we saw would have cut deep anywhere in the world, but it cuts deeper here in Israel. October 7th, which was sacred to a sacred Jewish holiday, became the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. It has brought to the surface painful memories and scars left by millennia of anti-Semitism and the genocide of the Jewish people. The world watched then. It knew. And the world did nothing. We will not stand by and do nothing again. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. To those who are living in limbo, waiting desperately to learn the fate of a loved one, especially to families of the hostages, you're not alone. We're working with partners throughout the region, pursuing every avenue to bring home those who are being held captive by Hamas. I can't speak publicly about all the details, but let me assure you, for me, as the American president, there's no higher priority than the release and safe return of all these hostages. To those who are grieving, a child, a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a friend, I know you feel like there's that black hole in the middle of your chest. You feel like you're being sucked into it. The survivor's remorse, the anger, the questions of faith in your soul. Starting at staring at that empty chair, sitting Shiva. The first Sabbath without them. They're the everyday things, the small things that you miss the most. The scent when you open the closet door. The morning coffee you shared together. The bend of his smile, the perfect picture of a laugh. The giggle every little boy, the baby. For those who have lost loved ones, this is what I know. They'll never be truly gone. There's something that's never fully lost, your love for them and their love for you. And I promise you, you'll be walking along some days and say, what would she or he want me to do? You smile when you pass a place that reminds you of them. That's when you know 
when a smile comes to your lips before a tear to your eye, that's when you know you're going to fully make it. That's what will give you the fortitude to find light in the darkest hours. When terrorists believe they could bring down, bring you down, bend your will, break your resolve, but they never did and they never will. Instead, we saw incredible stories of heroism and courage. Israelis taking care of one another. Neighbors forming watch groups to protect their kibbutz. Opening their homes to shelter survivors. Retired soldiers running into danger once again. Civilian medics flying across rescue, flying rescue missions. And off-duty medics at the music festival caring for the wounded before becoming victim, before becoming a victim himself. Volunteers retrieving bodies of the dead so families could bury their loved ones in accordance with Jewish tradition. Reservists leaving behind their families, their honeymoons, their studies abroad without hesitation, and so much more. The State of Israel was born to be a safe place for the Jewish people of the world. That's why it was born. Long said, if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. And while it may not feel that way today, Israel must again be a safe place for the Jewish people. And I promise you, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that it will be. Seventy-five years ago, just 11 minutes after its founding, President Harry S. Truman and the United States of America became the first nation to recognize Israel. We've stood by your side ever since. We're going to stand by your side now. My administration was in close touch with your leadership from the first moments of this attack. We're going to make sure we have what you have what you need to protect your people, to defend your nation. For decades, we've ensured Israel's qualitative military edge. And later this week, I'm going to ask the United States Congress for an unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. We're going to keep Iron Dome fully supplied so we can continue standing sentinel over Israeli skies, saving Israeli lives. We've moved U.S. military assets to the region, including positioning the USS Ford Carrier Strike Group in the Eastern Mediterranean, with the USS Eisenhower on the way to deter, to defer further aggression against Israel, and to prevent this conflict from spreading. The world will know that Israel is, str Israel is stronger than ever. And my message to any state or any other hostile actor Thinking about attacking Israel remains the same as it was a week ago. Don't. 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 Since this terrorist attack, terrorist attack took place, we've seen it described as Israel's 9-11. Though for a nation the size of Israel, it was like 15 9-11s. The scale may be different, but I'm sure those horrors have tapped into so, some kind of primal feeling in Israel, just like it did and felt in the United States. Shock, pain, rage, an all-consuming rage. I understand, and many Americans understand. You can't look at what has happened here to your mothers, your fathers, your grandparents, sons, daughters, children, even babies, and not scream out for justice. Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. 
While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. I'm the first U.S. President to visit Israel in time of war. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. There's always cost, but it requires being deliberate. It requires asking very hard questions. It requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. <clears throat> the vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses innocents, innocent families in Gaza as human shields, putting their command centers, their weapons, their communications tunnels in residential areas. Palestinian people are suffering greatly as well. We mourn the loss of innocent Palestinian lives like the entire world. I was outraged and saddened by the enormous loss of life yesterday in the hospital in Gaza. Based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. The United States unequivocally stands for the protection of civilian life during conflict, and I grieve, I truly grieve for the families who were killed or wounded by this tragedy. The people of Gaza need food, water, medicine, shelter. Today, I asked the Israeli cabinet, who I met with for some time this morning, to agree to the delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, based on the understanding that there will be inspections and that the aid should go to civilians, not to Hamas. Israel agreed the humanitarian assistance can begin to move from Egypt to Gaza. Let me be clear. <clears throat> if Hamas diverts or steals, the assistance, they will have demonstrated once again that they have no concern for the welfare of the Palestinian people. And it will end. <clears throat> As a practical matter, it will, it will stop the international community from being able to provide this aid. <clears throat> We're working in close cooperation with the government of Egypt, the United Nations, and its agencies like the World Food Program and other partners in the region to get trucks moving across the border as soon as possible. Separately, I ask Israel that the global community demand that the International Red Cross be able to visit hostages. I just demanded that the United States fully — a just demand that the United States fully supports. Today, I'm also announcing $100 million in new U.S. funding for humanitarian assistance in both Gaza and the West Bank. This money will support more than 1 million displaced and conflict-affected Palestinians, including emergency needs in Gaza. You are a Jewish state. You are a Jewish state, but you're also a democracy. And like the United States, you don't live by the rules of terrorists. You live by the rule of law. And when conflicts flare, you live by the law of wars. What sets us apart from the terrorists is we believe in the fundamental dignity of every human life. Israeli, Palestinian, Arab, Jew, Muslim, Christian, everyone. You can't give up what makes you who you are. If you give that up, then the terrorists win, and we can never let them win. You know, Israel's a miracle, a triumph of faith and resolve and resilience over impossible pain and loss. Think about October 7th, the Jewish holiday, where you read about the death of Moses, <clears throat> a tragic story of a profound loss to an entire nation a death that could have left helpless, hopelessness 
in the hearts of the entire of an entire nation. But though Moses died, his memory, his message, his lessons have lived on for generations of the Jewish people as well as many others. And just as the memory of your loved ones will live on as well. After reading the story of Moses' death, those who observed the holiday began reading the Torah from the very beginning. The story of creation reminds us of two things. First, that when we get knocked down, we get back up again and we begin anew. And second, when we're faced with tragedy and loss, we must go back to the beginning and remember who we are. We are all human beings creating the image of God with dignity, humanity, and purpose. In the darkness, to be the light unto the world is what we're about. You inspire hope and light for so many around the world. That's what the terrorists seek to destroy. That's what they seek to destroy, because they live in darkness, but not you, not Israel. Nations of conscience, like the United States and Israel, are not measured solely by the example of their power. <laughs> We're measured by the power of our example. <clears throat> That's why, as hard as it is, we must keep pursuing peace. We must keep pursuing a path so that Israel and the Palestinian people can both live safely, in security, in dignity, and in peace. For me, that means a two-state solution. We must keep working for Israel's greater integration with its neighbors. These attacks have only strengthened my commitment and determination and my will to get that done. I'm here to tell you the terrorists will not win. Freedom will win. So let me end where I began. <clears throat> Israel, you're not alone. The United States stands with you. I've told the story before, and I'll tell it again, of my first meeting with an Israeli prime minister 50 years ago as a young senator. I was sitting across from Golda Meir at her desk in her office. And she had a guy named, a guy who later became prime minister, sitting next to me, just before the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And she flipped the maps up and down, telling me how bad things were and how terrible they were. All of a sudden, she looked at me and she said, would you like a photograph? I looked at her. She got up from her desk and walked out into that hallway. I think it's marble flooring. Walked out in the hallway. We walked down, there were a bunch of photographers standing in front of us. We were standing shoulder to shoulder. Without her looking at me, she said to me, knowing I'd hear her, why do you look so worried, Senator Biden? And I said, worried? Like, of course I'm worried. And she looked at me, and she didn't look. She said, we don't worry, Senator. We Israelis have a secret weapon. We have nowhere else to go. Well, today, I say to all of Israel, the United States isn't going anywhere either. We're going to stand with you. We'll walk beside you in those dark days. And we'll walk beside you in the good days to come. And <clears throat> they will come. As you say in Hebrew, which I'm not going to attempt to do because I'm such a terrible linguist, I'll say it in English, the people of Israel live. The people of Israel live. Israel will be safe, secure, Jewish, and democratic state today, tomorrow, and forever. May God protect all those who work for peace. God save those who are still in harm's way. Thank you very much.
Mr. President, what is your red line that would prompt U.S. military involvement in this war? Good evening, my fellow Americans. We're facing an inflection point in history. One of those moments where the decisions we make today are going to determine the future for decades to come. That's what I'd like to talk with you about tonight. You know, early this morning, I returned from Israel. <clears throat> they tell me I'm the first American president to travel there during the war. I met with the prime minister and members of his cabinet. And most movingly, I met with Israelis who had personally lived through horrific horror of the attack by Hamas on the 7th of October. More than 1,300 people slaughtered in Israel, including at least 32 American citizens. Scores of innocents, from infants to the elderly grandparents, Israelis, Americans taken hostage. As I told the families of Americans being held captive by Hamas, we're pursuing every avenue to bring their loved ones home. As president, there is no higher priority for me than the safety of Americans held hostage. The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. <clears throat> in Israel, I saw people who were strong, determined, resilient, and also angry, in shock and in deep, deep pain. I also spoke with President Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, and reiterated the United States remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. The actions of Hamas terrorists don't take that right away. Like so many other, I'm heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, including the explosion at the hospital in Gaza, which was not done by the Israelis. We mourn every innocent life lost. We can't ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. You know, the assault on Israel echoes nearly 20 months of war, tragedy, and brutality inflicted on the people of Ukraine, people that were very badly hurt since Putin launched his all-out invasion. We've not forgotten the mass graves, the bodies found bearing signs of torture, rape used as a weapon by the Russians and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian children forcibly taken into Russia, stolen from their parents. It's sick. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. Hamas' stated purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields, and innocent Palestinian families are suffering greatly because of them. Meanwhile, Putin denies Ukraine has or ever had real statehood. He claims the Soviet Union created Ukraine. And just two weeks ago, he told the world that if the United States and our allies withdraw, and if the United States withdraw, our allies will as well, military support for Ukraine would have, quote, a week left to live, but we're not withdrawing. I know these conflicts can seem far away, and it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. 
So if we don't stop Putin's appetite for power and control in Ukraine, he won't limit himself just to Ukraine. He's, Putin's already threatened to remind, quote, remind Poland that their Western land was a gift from Russia. One of his top advisors, a former president of Russia, has called Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania Russia's Baltic provinces. These are all NATO allies. For 75 years, NATO has kept peace in Europe and has been the cornerstone of American security. And if Putin attacks a NATO ally, we will defend every inch of NATO which the treaty requires and calls for. We'll have something that we do not seek. Make it clear, we do not seek. We do not seek to have American troops fighting in Russia or fighting against Russia. Beyond Europe, we know that our allies and maybe most importantly our adversaries and competitors are watching. They're watching our response in Ukraine as well. And if we walk away and let Putin erase Ukraine's independence, would-be aggressors around the world be emboldened to try the same? The risk of conflict and chaos could spread in other parts of the world, in the Indo-Pacific, in the Middle East, especially in the Middle East. Iran is, is, is supporting Russia in Ukraine, and it's supporting Hamas and other terrorist groups in the region, and will continue to hold them accountable, I might add. The United States and our partners across the region are working to build a better future for the Middle East. One where the Middle East is more stable, better connected to its neighbors, and through innovative projects like the India Middle East Europe Rail Corridor that I announced this year at the summit of the world's biggest economies. More predictable markets, more employment, less rage, less grievances, less war when connected. It benefits the people, it would benefit the people of the Middle East and it would benefit us. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances will keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine is a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. Help us keep American troops out of harm's way. Help us build a world that is safer, more peaceful, more prosperous for our children and grandchildren. In Israel, we must make sure that they have what they need to protect their people today and always. The security package I'm sending to Congress and asking Congress to do is an unprecedented commitment to Israel's security that will sharpen Israel's qualitative military edge, which we've committed to, the qualitative military edge. We're going to make sure Iron Dome continues to guard the skies over Israel. We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. Look, at the same time, President Netanyahu and I discussed again yesterday the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best as they can. <clears throat> the people of Gaza urgently need food, water, and medicine. Yesterday, in discussions with the leaders of Israel and Egypt, I secured an agreement for the first shipment of humanitarian assistance from the United Nations to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. If Hamas does not divert or steal this shipment, 
these shipments, we're going to provide an opening for sustained delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians. As I said in Israel, as hard as it is, we cannot give up on peace. We cannot give up on a two-state solution. Israel and Palestinians equally deserve to live in safety, dignity, and peace. You know, and here at home, we have to be honest with ourselves. In recent years, too much hate has given too much oxygen, fueling racism, the rise of anti-Semitism, Islamic phobia, right here in America. It's also intensified in the wake of recent events that led to the horrific threats and attacks that both shock us and break our hearts. On October 7th, terror attacks have triggered deep scars and terrible memories in the Jewish community. Today, Jewish families worried about being targeted in school, wearing symbols of their face walking down the street, or going out about their daily lives. You know, I know many of you in the Muslim American community, the Arab American community, the Palestinian American community, and so many others are outraged and hearted, saying to yourselves, here we go again with Islamophobia and distrust we saw after 9-11. Just last week, a mother was brutally stabbed. A little boy here in the United States, a little boy who just turned six years old was murdered in their home outside of Chicago. His name was Wadiha, Wadiha, a proud American, a proud Palestinian-American family. We can't stand by and stand silent when this happens. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism. We must also, without equivocation, denounce Islamophobia. And to all you hurting, those of you hurting, I want you to know I see you. You belong. And I want to say this to you. You're all America. You're all America. This is in a moment, you know, in moments like these, when fear and suspicion, anger and rage run hard, that we have to work harder than ever to hold on to the values that make us who we are. We're a nation of religious freedom, freedom of expression. We all have a right to debate and disagree without fear of being targeted in schools or workplaces or in our communities. <clears throat> I must renounce violence and vitriol see each other not as enemies, but as fellow Americans. When I was in Israel yesterday, I uh, said that when America experienced the hell of 9-11, we felt enraged as well. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. So I cautioned the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. And here in America, let us not forget who we are. We reject all forms, all forms of hate whether against Muslim, Jews, or anyone. That's what great nations do, and we are a great nation. On Ukraine, I'm asking Congress to make sure we can continue to send Ukraine the weapons they need to defend themselves and their country without interruption so Ukraine can stop Putin's brutality in Ukraine. They are succeeding. When Putin invaded Ukraine, he thought he would take Kyiv and all of Ukraine in a matter of days. Well, over a year later, Putin has failed, and he continues to fail. Kyiv still stands because of the bravery of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine has regained more than 50% of the territory Russian troops once occupied, backed by U.S.-led coalition of more than 50 countries around the world, all doing its part to support Kyiv. What would happen if we walked away? We are the essential nation. Meanwhile, Putin has turned to Iran, 
than North Korea to buy attack drones and ammunition to terrorize Ukrainian cities and people. From the outset, I've said, I will not send American troops to fight in Ukraine. All Ukraine is asking for is help for the weapons, munitions, the capacity, the capability to push invading Russian forces off their land and the air defense system to shoot down Russian missiles before they destroy Ukrainian cities. Let me be clear about something. We send Ukrainian equipment sitting in our stockpiles. And when we use the money allocated by Congress, we use it to replenish our own stores, our own stockpiles with new equipment. Equipment that, defeat, that defends America and is made in America. Patron missiles for air defense batteries made in Arizona. Artillery shells manufactured in 12 states across the country, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Texas, and so much more. You know, just as in World War II, today patriotic American workers are building the arsenal of democracy and serving the cause of freedom. Let me close with this. Earlier this year, I boarded Air Force One for a secret flight to Poland. There I boarded a train with blacked out windows for a 10-hour ride each way to Kyiv to stand with the people of Ukraine ahead of the one-year anniversary of their brave fight against Putin. And I'm told I was the first American to enter a war zone not controlled by the United States military since President Lincoln. With me was just a small group of security personnel and a few advisors. But when I exited that train and met Zelensky, President Zelensky, I didn't feel alone. I was bringing with me the idea of America, the promise of America, to the people who are today fighting for the same things we fought for 250 years ago, freedom, independence, self-determination. As I walked through Kyiv with President Zelensky, with air raid sirens sounding in the distance, I felt something I've always believed, more strongly than ever before. America is a beacon to the world, still, still. Whereas my friend Madeleine Albright said, the indispensable nation. Tonight, there are innocent people all over the world who hope because of us, who believe in a better life because of us, who are desperate not to be forgotten by us and are waiting for us. But time is of the essence. I know we have our divisions at home. <clears throat> we have to get past them. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibilities as a great nation. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. In moments like these, we have to remind, we have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. The United States of America. And there is nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. My fellow Americans, thank you for your time. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get 
guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, I told you it was going to be a great show. Troubadour, thanks for that song. Love has way, I hope so. Rabbi Foster, you were sensational. Thank you for your kindness and the privilege of letting me interview you. I know that's tough. Gosh, Vic Mitchell, I admire you and Amy being safe over there. I want to give you just a little taste of what I was going on with that whole Nasser stuff. I'm not going to have... All this sound, but there's regular Muslim Brotherhood caller to Peter Boyles. You get to know callers, and every time Israel did anything, this guy would state the Muslim Brotherhood position. His name was Bama, and Peter would let him talk. But back then, he would have on Robert Spencer, Tim Furnish, Pam Geller, whoever to say radical Islam is bad, but Bama says radical Islam is good. And the other day, Peter Boyles just let Bama go wild. I know they don't have many callers over there anymore, but he let this guy on for about a half an hour, talked about a big 80th birthday party, treated him like a long-lost friend. It's kind of crazy. Somebody called in to Boyle and said, where's Robert Spencer? And he just deflected. Instead, he embraced Bama. Listen to the excitement. It's the I feel an empty ever since you left. Oh, you're kind. I, it's, yeah, you I, were in my morning, but ever since now, it's an empty. Nothing in well, there. I, I, I mean, I'll go off script. Um, Saturday night, I, I had a birthday party, and uh, mm-hmm. I invited so many really significant people from my life. And Dean mm-hmm. Singleton, as you know, who owned the Denver Post, Rocky Mountain News, and actually had about 114 newspapers, has always been you know, a friend and we, and then Lee Larson and all this list of people. And I was telling Mm -hmm. Billy, I get up to make a talk and I'm looking, here's my grandson. It's the end of an era. And uh, Mm -hmm. not, not because I'm 80 and doing weekend jobs because 
I, I think talk radio is pretty doomed right now in this country, and um, mm-hmm. newspapers mm-hmm. are newspapers are gone. Uh, Stephanie mm-hmm. R- Stephanie Riggs, old anchor from Channel Four, was there with Tom Martino, and mm-hmm. you know she, you know, and all these different things. And what we're watching is, mm-hmm. I believe, what I saw at, at my own birthday party was the end of an era. That, um, mm-hmm. you know, the and I I can't really put it all together. I, I talked last night to Chuck Bonnewell for a really long time about it, but it just, I mean, here's my grandson who is sitting over here, and then there's Dean, and and then there's Lee Larson, and then there's Brian, and Brian has uh, left the job, and and I'm thinking the the whole, the whole of my career in this business that starts when I'm a writer for the traffic reports, all the way up to you know me walking away after getting clipped, and mm-hmm. I, I realized that it's, mm-hmm. it's it's and then listening I, listening to the last three and a half years of talk radio, and they wonder why they can't get this thing off the ground anymore. Well, it's self explanatory. It's what they uh, absolutely what they did to it. Absolutely, and, and so I tell you, I tell you, you are a money man in a talk uh, radio talk show, but mm. well. You yeah. have to do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, it's like, you know, we're we're talking about podcasting now. We're you know, we do the YouTube show. We do. I get the chance to do Saturdays, and um, and I worked on Saturday show because yeah. I wa- wanted to get the right historians on and people to talk. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, but on Saturday, I sometimes I listen to your uh, podcast because on Saturday morning mm-hmm. I sleep all morning long, so yeah. I barely. Yeah cut you have the time to cut you back oh, you sometimes a little, oh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah no peter we need you back we need you back so the first thing you do with peter boyles just like that david smith exercised and demonstrated if you flatter him you can get everywhere just like with trump so now Obama has some kind of set up and peter's bonding and they're talking about those great guys of hezbollah just like donald trump has talked about how very smart and heaping praise on Hezbollah, the party of God, the Iranian agents who are similarly dedicated to destroying the Jews. You don't know how right you are when you say in some part of the world there is no tomorrow, there is only uh, yesterday repeating. But if you look at this Palestinian, every Palestinian 75 years old or younger, they never knew what life really is about. Mm. Them kids, mm. they don't know, they don't know playground. Those kids, they don't know park. They don't know nothing, attraction park, nothing. And the world is just quiet about it in their own land, mm. in their own land. You said you, uh, you have some guests who back out. Uh, yeah, to, I, I won't tell you, but somebody on because, set. Yeah, um, Fear, yeah, fear of yeah. Re- fear, afraid, fear of reprisal. They afraid to tell the truth because your truth is not gonna rub Israel's back. This is the truth. Nobody wants to well, has, accept. Hezbollah, has, Hezbollah was created in Lebanon. Um, when people say Hezbollah invaded, no, they didn't. They they came up out of the prisons. They came out of the prison systems. Yep. Uh, yep. When the is, when 
the PLO flees and invades Israel, and then the Israelis chase them in, and then the Syrians chase them in. The, the, these are where this is where Hezbollah gets its roots. Oh and, yeah, and oh, they yeah. they come out of the prisons, they come out of the war, um, and now there it's a very it's a powerful force. Maybe the most powerful force in Lebanon today is Hezbollah. Uh-huh. And now, Obama sensing the kill and the chance to make a complete conversion to radical Islam pushes the proposition that only Hamas has the Palestinians back. And therefore, they're great people. And this is why Peter Boyles can't take a side because Hamas is like his hero, Michael Collins. Listen to Obama, work him. Work him. Work him, Obama. You've got him. Somebody, somebody got to have this Palestinian back. And this is the only way the world allowed the situation to be. Well, These Palestinians... They are in their land, but they cannot even have clean drinking water. They cannot have a job. They cannot eat what they want to eat. Everything depends on Israel. Can you, I, 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 wrote, I wrote this down on my worksheet. Can you feel sorry for, for, for the Palestinians who are in Gaza right now, but not be supportive of Hamas? Because that's difficult. If... But can you feel what's going to about to happen? And I'm reading the Palestinians last night and that won't leave. And um, uh-uh. and they said, we've already fled our homes once. Peter, if they leave, the settlers will come behind them. Well, that's what they, they believe. Come, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what they believe. They will come behind them and they will never be back again. Yeah, that's what they say. Never be back again. Now, whether that's true or not, but that's certainly belief. And Palestinians in Gaza... Uh, I've never really, I mean, the, they're, they're part of the refugees from 48. Mm-hmm. And there's been an occupier there since, they say, in 67 in the Arab-Israeli war. I'm going to read these guys. And since 2007, remember 2006, there was an election, and the mm-hmm. Palestinians, they elected Hamas. There hasn't, mm-hmm. been, a, there hasn't been an election since. But yeah. uh, the... Um, They've been cut off from the outside world, and I, I, I yeah, yeah, no, I it's feel a big prison. Can yeah. you imagine? They call it two prison. million people, oh. two million people in a forty. Oh yeah, no, there's square miles. There's there's like two point three million Palestinians living in Gaza. Um, there's there's the there, there's the the walls, and there's electrified fencing, and and they, and they they will tell you. I mean, I've I been on Gaza, and they they'll tell you. And they all English speakers, and the guy said this is an open aired prison. I remember him t- me t- telling me that. It is. So that's the, is. that's how they that's how they see it. And then you flip it over to the other side, and that's how they see it. Um, oh, oh, God. no, no, seriously. You know, you know, you know. Even Ben Gurion, he said it. He said these Palestinian are the Hebrew. They just some some converted to Christianity, some become Muslim, but mm. they are the Hebrew. Well, but you come from you come from somewhere else, huh? And claim well the, 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 the land. Yeah. In what world are we? The West 
and all the Western government, they, been, they made this mistake long before, and now they are afraid to fix it. There's this a... is not going to go well. As, song, as long as we don't have two independent states, we, I mean, we understand. Now, to say Jews, get out of, not, I'm, I'm not going to say Jews, but Zionists, get out of Israel, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to no. happen. I no. mean, it's not going to happen. No, and, and it's just nuts. not. And that's why, with somebody I've been asking, I said, it seems to be this is in a cycle of 10 years. I'll tell you what I think. It's also, it's um, 1968 Tet Offensive. And if you read about that, when the NVA and the VC went into a, a city called Way, uh, and when finally, and that was during the Tet Offensive, and they started digging up the bodies of, people with their heads chopped off and hands chopped off. And the NVA um, did that. And, and the idea for, for was, was you're going to fail, but Mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to get all this attention. You're going to do all these horrible things. And uh, so at the time when, when Westmoreland's the in charge and, and he kept telling people he could see the end of the, he could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And after the Tet offensive, which the actually, the American military won the Tet Offensive militarily, but lost it, you know, with Walter Cronkite and others. But Westmoreland said, I, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then somebody said, yeah, it was a train coming the other way. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, there, there's the Easter Rising in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in uh, Ireland on Easter Sunday, 1917. They seize the post office, and they're, they're going to go die. They, they're they're going to go die. Yep. And, yep. You don't have nothing to lose. And now Obama goes in for the kill. And since Peter is receptive, and probably his audience is to understand, this was on the George Brockler show, an army officer. He got this Muslim Brotherhood crap with the host agreeing to the point where he gets to say, the Jews have to get out of Israel. And he, has, he, he corrects that, and he says Zionist, just like the Hamas charter says, we got to kill all the Jews, and here's why. They start with the protocols of the elders of Zion, etc., which comes out of Russia. But all the Jewish tropes you can possibly hear, including on talk radio, but my God, the guy who wanted to wipe out the Jewish state of Israel was Gamal Abdul Nasser, who led Egypt to try to wipe us out in 67 when I was a boy. And he did not succeed. He got rebuffed. The Israelis fought back. And that guy's like Haman or Hitler to Jews, but he's a hero to Peter Boyles. Give a listen to this. And that's the part that is missing because we're optimistic about our own future and they're so schooled in in being willing to die. And I mm-hmm. I mentioned this book that I just finished about the final three weeks before the Japanese surrender. They were they, they, we we United States of America had burned lots of women and children. And actually, Lemay mm-hmm. once Lemay once said that you know if they don't win this, he could be tried for a war crime. Um, Absolutely. No, and they all knew, and yet they knew that these people were so resolute that they were not going to surrender and you had to kill them. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that, but there was somebody to quit. I don't know who, who would quit, who would surrender 
nobody. Nobody. Nobody There's will. Nobody, nobody, nobody there. Will. They won't. But if the whole world want to hold the truth, tell them what's going on, I think we can do something. I don't know. I mean, There's I... no other way but two different separate states. No other way. Well, that's what Biden... Israel... You know, the, the, Israel, um, Israel is nothing but the project. They don't have no constitution. They don't have no border. They want to take the whole Middle East well, area. That, that, I mean, that, but see, what you say is what is being said against them. That, and mm-hmm. But they have fought these wars. I mean, they have fought these wars again and again and again and again. You know, I mean, when the state is founded, that's, they... That's going to be war because you take somebody's land. That's well, going to be war. Peter, if I come and take your house, you're going to fight me too no. out. No, I listen. That's what I, they do. The Palestinians, they are in their right. The wrong part, that's what everybody supports, which is just mind blowing. But then. All wh- people don't or people don't know what they're talking about, or they don't know their history. They don't know nothing. They just want to be big mouth. But they don't have a watch. clue about the situation. It is. None. It has no good ending. No. No. It's not, it's not going to end good. And the West created all the situation. Well, they created all the situation. Oh, the, the, Look the, at Biden. Sure. Biden is asking Netanyahu, what's your plan when you, when you invade uh, Gaza? Netanyahu didn't even care to but, answer him. It, it, and again, he didn't even care to answer him. And I'll give you the final comment, but again, this is one of the places in the world where the British came in and acted yep. as if, and, uh, and that's, why you, it all. that's where you get Nasser, that's where you get these people yep. from. They Nasser overthrows yep. Farouk. I, I when I was a kid growing up, I, I read about and I I was like schooled to not like Nasser that Nasser was a bad guy. And as I got older and read and did some traveling, then I realized mm-hmm. Nasser mm-hmm. was a N- yep. Nasser was a, a a hero. He was, and he he was, he was a Baathist, and he was all these things and. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to today, I, I see Nasser as a totally different person than I did yeah. when I was in junior high and high school as a little reader. I, I thought, mm-hmm. and to this day, mm-hmm. when people talk about Nasser, but he's beloved in the Middle yep. East. He really is. Yep, absolutely. Okay, forget about listening to Peter Boyles anymore, but it's good to put all this on the record. And better yet, put on the record the three great speeches of Joe Biden one after another. After October 7th happened, thank God Donald Trump wasn't in charge. Can you imagine the shit he would have said? Instead, we have Joe Biden, who spoke so beautifully from the White House on October 10th. Then he spoke again in the Oval Office on October 18th and from Israel on October 16th. These talk show hosts would not play Joe Biden in full. He gave great speeches. Even Brett Hume on Fox News said Biden was great, but not Dan Kaplis, not George Brockler. Instead, they decided to go after Tim Hernandez, a backbencher, and blame Jared Polis and Jenna Griswold and Phil Weiser for his sins. In the meanwhile, Daphne Michelson, Janae, she handled all of that. She handled it behind the scenes, and if they would have been at the rally for Israel, they would have heard her explain that. She called Tim Hernandez and said, 
hey, your statements in support of DSA the night of the attack, that was bullshit. We don't appreciate it. What the fuck? And then Tim Hernandez was not that receptive, but he called her back the next day and said, you know what? I've thought about it, and you were right about a lot of this, and I'm going to apologize, and he did. Now, what about Peter Boyles? He fills in for George Brockler. He's sponsored by Dan Kaplan. Don't they have more control over him than Phil Weiser has over Tim Hernandez or Jenna Griswold does? Gosh, it was great to hear Jenna say what it was like to be a Jew up in Estes Park growing up. It would have been good if I would have seen any of my old radio colleagues there on the west steps of the Capitol. In fact, I sponsored the rally against Iran nukes. Kaplis was there with me that day, even Corcoran. Mike Kaufman, the Aurora mayor, was there. He was a congressman at the time. We had a lot of people there, but not Peter Boyles. He was invited, but he didn't show because he's Tehran Pete, don't you know? This was a great show. I hope you enjoy it. It's long, but it makes a record of what was going on. On Shabbat, October 2023, if you like my show, tell a friend. Give me five stars on Apple, please. Subscribe as well, Spotify, wherever you get your kicks. YouTube, but you can't see me. But check out our shorts. They are hot. The Craig Silverman Show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.